0: So, you have a player who's still struggling through Week 8, but how do you decide whether to hold on or cut him loose? I'll ask Rob Leibowitz from RotoHeaven.com and the Tout Wars AL-only League next on Baseball HQ Radio.
1: Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. (laughs) And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt.
0: And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, May the 17th. It's show number 22 of the 2019 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature interview with Rob Leibowitz from RotoHeaven.com and the Telt Wars AL Only League, discussing when to cut bait on a player, early prospect speculation, fab spending, player news, his boons and banes, and a little surprise. We'll have our Market Watch player news reports. Harold Nichols has coverage of the National League, including the second base situations in Colorado and Milwaukee, an important call up in Atlanta, and some other NL player news. And Jock Thompson has news from the American League, including a season ending injury for the Yankees, an important activation in Minnesota, and other news from the American League. I'll have our weekly talk with Todd, asking Todd Zola about assessing trade offers. We'll also have our commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our frequent flyer commentary, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Miami starting pitcher Zach Gallen. And in our weekend pitcher matchup segment, Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick looks at a marquee matchup with Houston right-hander Brad Peacock in Boston on Sunday to take on the resurgent left-hander Chris Sale. And in Master Notes i'll be talking about watching the crawl it's another big friday full edition thanks for joining us at baseball hq radio hey what do you say scott turnbull gave up six runs in four innings on thursday against oakland and ended up having an okay fantasy outing we gotta talk some baseball i imagine scott turnbull's fantasy owners had various kinds of cardiac events if they happen to hear only that he lost 13-3 in Detroit's game against Oakland on Thursday. Yes, Turnbull did give up six runs in the shellacking, including a grand slam by Jureks and Profar, and he did give up seven base runners over four innings, an unhelpful 175 whip for the day, but his outing wasn't nearly the fantasy disaster it could have been. After sailing through the first two innings with three strikeouts and only a bunt single to blot his record, Turnbull had a third inning he'd rather forget. First, Robbie Grossman tripled, and then Josh Fegley singled him home. Marcus Semyon forced Fegley at second, then Chapman walked. Olsen hit into a fielder's choice. Chris with a K. Davis lived up to his name with a strikeout. Piscotti walked, and then Profar hit the granny before Loriana whiffed to end the inning. But here's the thing. When Olsen hit into that fielder's choice, first baseman Nico Goodrum of the Tigers made a bad throw. Everybody safe error. Ben Davis's strikeout was the second out of the inning, but it should have been the third, if not for Goodrum's error. So when Turnbull uncorked a wild pitch to score Semyon, and then gave up the granny to the next hitter, all those runs were unearned. So his ERA for the tilt was a modest and actually useful 225, which probably helped lower the ERAs of many a fantasy team. Turnbull actually stayed in the game through the fourth inning, allowing a single around a ground-out whiff and fly ball out to wrap up his day. And hours later, when they saw the box scores, all of Scott Turnbull's owners enjoyed a big sigh of relief. In the first inning of this Friday Full Edition, it's part one of our feature expert interview with Rob Liebowitz from RotoHeaven.com and from my Tout Wars American League-only league, Rob Liebowitz, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. This is your first time.
2: It is. It is my first time. Thank you for having me, Patrick.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, I know you're in Tout Wars American League League because uh, I'm in that league with you, but how many other teams are you running this season, and how are they doing?
2: Well, over the years, I've actually paired it back quite a bit. You know, I have three kids, and, <laughs> and a lot going on in my life. So I'm back down to only Tout Wars. I have one local ale-only keeper league that the day after Tower wars in new york city and then i have him in the uh, tg fbi and that's it that's all i do and, and right now i'm in the middle pack of Taut wars um i see some room to move up and in that one but i'm what well, i was in six places of this morning so and that's been a really tight league right now i think 20 less than 20 points for separate teams so we have some movement there i'm in second or third in my keeper league so it's decision-making time for keeper leagues, or people are going to dump or not so I'm starting to get the emails about whether I want to move or whether teams want to dump so that, that's I expect to make a move in one of the, that league soon and TGFBI hasn't been going quite as well as last year last year I finished in second in my league and in the top 20 or 30 last year and this year I, I've had like 5-6 injuries before just as the season got started and my team's pretty much toast as it is
0: you mentioned that uh, in keeper leagues, uh, it's starting to get to the part of the year when uh, teams are contacting each other with the possibility of dumping their stars to get prospects and low-priced talent. It's When I started in, in fantasy baseball, it was also in an American League-only keeper format, and the dumping usually started taking place around July. And uh, it seems like every year it gets earlier and earlier to the point where I've been in leagues or around leagues where the dumping started almost literally right after the auction was over because guys knew what their plan was, which was to build and and, uh, they weren't going to waste any time. And it started to really uh, affect how the auction was going, all these kind of things. So first of all, how do you decide when the time is right to dump?
2: Um, mostly well, usually, when you go into the season in the Keeper League, yeah, you should know what your, your expectations are. I mean, sometimes the auction might go your way where if you, you got some bargains or if a player took a chance on actually did better than you expected, maybe you're a little bit more competitive. But really, when teams that are going for especially in my league, it's so stared. Some teams are just already built. They're too tough to beat, so you know that you're going to have to make a move. So... When I want to make the move is as I basically target certain players I know are the top prospects, and I know if I want them, I better be the first to get them, and that's what's happening right now. People are I have Joe Adele and Eloy Jimenez in this league, and so people are like, you're not moving Eloy, but we want Joe, so I have about four or five offers on the table for him already. So... <clears throat>
0: And how are you going to decide, uh, well, first let me ask you this, Rob, what kind of players are you being offered in the early going in this dumping procedure? You're going to be a dumpy. You're going to be the guy acquiring the name talent and you're going to be giving up the prospects and the low price guys. So let's talk about a guy like Jordan Adele, obviously a top prospect in, in Los Angeles. He may even play this year, although I'd say that looks less and less likely as the days go by. But When you're talking about a top-level prospect like this, and I presume uh, like in most uh, keeper leagues that he's going to, when he starts in the big leagues, he'll be at a very low salary, typically $5 uh, for the first couple of years. What kind of offers are you getting to get a premium prospect like that in exchange?
2: I'm getting, usually we have a contract, and our contract's only a long-term contract in our league. A player has to go back into the pool once they've extended them to a certain point. It just—it's not a go up five dollars every year kind of league. It's after the second year you have to extend them the X amount of dollars. So basically, what I'm being offered are a bunch of those players who teams that are dumping know they have no chance to keep. So it doesn't—it's no skin off their back for next year whether they keep them or not. And it's—you know—it could be a premium level talent. Like I could be a Bregman and. Uh, and I'm detailing trade details of people's offers to me online on the air now. But, uh, but So it's three or four players so I'm getting back of you know high-caliber talent plus fab money because so many people want that one talent. Because once you get a Joe Adele, so he's probably not going to come up this year, say he comes up mid-season next year, so he's $5 next year, $5 in 2021, and then if he's a stud, then they can lock him up till. 2026 2025 so people are people are willing to pay a lot for that
0: and this sounds very much like the league i used to play in. so when you make your long-term contract decision it's five dollars per additional year from the start of the extension is that all right and so even at that i mean if i look back to the guy who drafted mike trout and traded him in my league by the way uh but I think when his extension came in from his five dollar rookie salary, I think the guy signed him for seven or eight years, you know all the way up to thirty five bucks or something like that, and still made money on it and is still making money on it so there is that tremendous uh, potential for value from one of these stud level prospects, also some risk. but did you say that you're getting offers of three and four players in a package
2: yes i mean this is it's just it 's all about league context, and in my league with um with uh, people tend to uh, take uh, the longest contract I think we've ever seen is a five-year contract. So most people try to maximize value. For example, using Trout, he went for the he was signed for twenty-five for four years, and he's back in the pool. So
0: yeah, when I whenever I did that lo- that decision making about what kind of long-term contract I just used a little spreadsheet that said here's what I here's what I think he is as a player over the next few years here's what the salary possibilities are how how do I maximize the total value that I'm going to get over the life of the contract assuming kind of an aging curve which either increases for a young player or you know has a peak and then starts to decline for a, a player who's a little older is that kind of how you approach it as well
2: no, dude, definitely. I mean, that's how I approach it, but, you know, that every league has it. I wasn't the Trout owner so, <laughs> from that perspective. But um, people like to maximize how much they have to spend at the draft. Level, and I think perhaps maybe they look at that too much as opposed to what they think. Or maybe I I don't recall where Trout was at year three, but that, that I mean, at that point it was pretty much 25 people. I mean, my league may be simply just very risk-adverse. Risk to locking up because then you have to pay the twice that contract back into the pool too. If you try to cut him and then you have to pay twice the contract back into the pool unless somebody claims all waivers for you. So there there is a risk factor into it.
0: And how soon do you think you're going to decide what what offer to take or if to take any offer at all?
2: Uh I'm being pushed for this week, so I may I may make a move on Joe though this week. So I mean, I have. There are a couple other teams that are making the push for first. So, well, so moves need to be made now because I know that if I don't make them, other teams will, and then I'll just be left looking for uh, 2021 or 2020.
0: When you look at the real Major League Baseball season this year, Rob, and we've all been watching baseball for a long time, have you seen any changes in the baseball environment uh, that you think are affecting how we should figure out what we need what we need to do as fantasy owners uh, and if so, what, what were they?
2: Well, obviously the the power explosion this year is the big change I've been seeing. Um but And so the number one thing I do reactively is to say, okay, the baseline for home runs expected to get me these number of standing points isn't going to be that number. So either I look at my team and say, okay, does my team fit that new context of extended power? Do I have those guys that are going to benefit from a possibly juice ball? Are they going to step up, or are they not going to have to go out and get different types of players who might benefit from that? type of juice ball. The other factor I would say is on the pitching staff side is okay, maybe ERA is going to be higher, maybe WIP is going to be higher, but it's all relative. So to me is don't panic with any pitching, just accept the new normal and just go with it and help your veterans and your better stars look at the base skills, make sure the base skills stay the same, and just accept maybe a slightly bigger different normal with more home runs allowed
0: what trends or changes out there have you seen that you think owners might be overreacting to
2: well i mean i haven't seen too many trends of people overreacting to i mean i i think it's still really early in the season i think most people are just if people are overreacting it's still over the small sample size issue it's may 16th the sample. I mean, people have less than 200 bats, less than 50 innings pitched. I mean, this is—it's ridiculously small, volatile sample sizes. So it's—it's it's the old axiom of be patient, give your veterans the benefit of the doubt, give players like Jose Ramirez the benefit of the doubt. He still has skills. He still got two-thirds of the baseball season in front of you. So I—I th- I think that's. I'm not seeing too much overreaction, at least in my leagues, from that.
0: Well, as you mentioned, we're in the middle of May, and that's not too far from the point that a lot of analysts say we first get our solid ideas of how our teams are doing and what they might be capable of doing, more importantly. So when do you first start looking at your team with an idea that it has gelled in an actionable way, notwithstanding the fact that uh, in your keeper league, you're going to have to maybe act a little sooner than you'd like because of the competitive pressures in dump trading from your other uh, front runners.
2: Um. Well, I mean, this is the time of year I start to look because I think while the standings and especially as we've seen towers are still volatile, I mean, I went from ninth place this week to fourth place in a week, so we have that going, yeah, I think I've been between fourth and ninth place over the course of the past week, but overall we know where we are in the standings and certain levels are pretty tight, so it's it's time to, again, to make moves before other people make moves. And not be left out in the cold, so then then just look to see which categories can move up most, and like saves are ridiculously tight in the Yale it's um and i think and, and and the other part is that you know my I have a lot of faith in my pitching staff in that particular league, so I think patience again was the most important thing there but the the uh my team isn't performing necessarily as well, in the offensive categories as I would like, so I'm may have to pursue some trades and use some of that pitching depth. I have to generate some upward movement in the standings in the offense.
0: Do you project the final standings and the categories to get an idea about how you want to proceed as far as making roster adjustments, making trades, these kind of things, or are you more working from where, where you stand now and, and just forecasting it kind of a um, line of sight?
2: Now, I, do preseason projections but then I stop I don't have the time that I would like to devote to doing updated detailed in-season projections uh but I so I basically work off what I have and what I know where which categories are most able to move up to and, and most easily able able to uh change over time
0: you mentioned that you're uh, looking at Tout Wars from the perspective of somebody who's in the middle of a very tightly packed range. I've noticed that there are all kinds of teams in the league bouncing around between 60 and 70. And then, as you said, in one day, you can bounce up eight or nine points or uh, or down eight or nine points. And there's no predicting it because it's so closely packed in the categories as well. So... With the leaders actually more in the high 70s and 80s, what adjustments do you think you can make to start gaining ground, not only on the clump that you're in in that, in that second tier, but as far as making a jump up into being competitive at the top of the standings?
2: Well, I mean, the, uh, just to look at the most closely packed categories, like I mentioned, uh, let's see, saves are certainly the most uh, closely impactful area. I think Aaron Hicks returned to my team is possibly one of the most impactful things that will happen. I've basically lost he's somebody who provides OVP, speed, and power. So I've basically gone zero from him all season long. So I think just that presence alone is almost like a trade, which can move me up in the standings. I don't know. His presence alone is going to move me into the top tiers, but at the start...
0: Yeah, that's an important point to keep in mind, too, because we all have injured players on our rosters, or we have players who are underperforming. You mentioned Jose Ramirez has really been frustrating for me this year, because if he was having any kind of year, I could probably pick up quite a few points across the offense. And, uh, I have to practice patience, as you mentioned, we all have to pra- practice patience, but if we assume that Jose Ramirez is going to come around and start playing better, if we uh, understand when our injured players are going to come back, and gosh knows uh, everybody in the league has injured players of one kind or another, uh, and if they haven't uh, been ruled out for the year, like I or heard Miguel Andujar is out for the year now, so whoever owns him in our, in our league is in trouble for, in that roster slot, but in a way, you described it perfectly when you said, getting Aaron Hicks is like getting a trade, and it's the kind of trade that's the best because it didn't cost you anything.
2: Exactly. I mean, that's. I mean, I, we'll probably discuss it later on, but that's exactly why I went after somebody like Jordan Alvarez. I said, okay, he's tearing up AAA. I don't know how long they can keep him down. I have have Jay Marisnik, who they're platooning with. How long can they keep Alvarez down? If I can get him at $9, that's nothing and just kind of stash him away and pray that but that's that's like a trade without making anything if he plays at that level i had some similar hopes for sean murphy because everybody needs a catcher but now he's injured and tore his meniscus and he's probably going to be out for about six seven weeks so that's unfortunate
0: well you mentioned uh the jordan alvarez pickup and i've noticed in tout wars Because it's such a shallow league that more and more owners are willing to take shots at these rookies who are not just coming up this week, but who might be coming up in three or four weeks. And uh, our rules say that if you uh, take a a free agent prospect from uh, one of the American League uh, affiliations, then you have to keep him on your roster as a dead spot for at least a week. Your active roster, and then you can reserve him in the subsequent week and get back to business. So, when you looked at Jordan Alvarez, what was it about him that caught your eye?
2: Um. Well, I've I've always been a, a fan. I mean, he's he's got legitimate power, ability to hit for average, and got some OBP skills. So, but mostly when I look to go get a prospect, it's a situation where I have an injury, and I'm filling in anyway with a sub-replacement level player. So that's the time I say to myself, take a week off, even though this player might not, whatever he might do, like a Cameron Maybin or whoever else is on my roster at the time, I don't know what level of great stats they're going to get for that one week, but it's worth a chance to get that player for a week. So that's when I try to do that. if if, if the my my option for an injury replacement is going to be some sort of subprime player, I'm going to uh, take a chance and see if I can get somebody. I'll, I'll take a zero in that for a week. It, I mean, it's not something that would should, you should do repeatedly because you might miss out on some stats. You never want to miss out on all stats. But just the upside there is just too great to, to miss, especially about three or four weeks ahead. I mean, that's the time to be picking up these players because otherwise you're going to be bidding normal aggressive fab bids from you have to get them before people are actually saying this guy's coming up next week. I have to bid $150, $200 to go get them.
0: I was wondering about that when I saw that you made the bid and I thought it was a smart bid and to tell you the truth, I was going to bid on him uh, also, but I was going to wait one more week and you beat me to the punch. And I guess what we're going to see, I'm going to wager is in, in, Uh, single league format leagues, I think we're going to see more and more of this kind of thing because, as you said, you've got a guy in the the free agent pool to replace your injured outfielder and you look at him and you think, not only is he going to get me very few counting stats because he's not playing or he's not a good hitter, there's lots of reasons, but if he does play he may actively hurt me in the on-base percentage or batting average ratio category and that's one of the things that you really can't afford to have happen and so you might as well do this kind of speculation but i i was curious rob when you were looking at all of the potential guys that you might have uh, considered for that um role the the uh, st- prospect that you're going to carry for a week and then and then put him back down that you chose a guy in the Houston organization. I know they haven't been shy about promoting guys, but, man, that's a pretty stacked lineup. Are, were you at all concerned the Orton Alvarez, despite how well he's playing in AAA, was just not going to be able to wedge his way in there past some of the tremendous talents that they have in Houston?
2: Yeah, I mean, I've, we've seen it with Preston Tucker the last couple of years. Over not Preston, Kyle, sorry. <laughs> It'sn't to happen. Kyle Tucker's gotten a bit buried, but also he hasn't performed very well at Triple either. Um, I'm one of those proponents that talent rises, and it's hard to keep talent down. So, and there seems to be a trend. I mean, this past week we've seen a whole bunch of top prospect promotions. So, um, I'm just hoping that Houston sees that they're a competitive team, and that they 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 if they're really serious about like us, going for it and winning their lead, winning the majors, and winning the World Series, that maybe they put the best talent on their field.
0: You mentioned uh, Aaron Hicks is on your roster, and he was activated recently. You were able to activate him this week, and you had to reserve Cameron Mabin to make the move, and you spent $71 on Cameron Mabin, and you didn't have him on your roster for very long, on your active roster. Do you regret spending the $71, or do you look at it as a sunk cost water under the bridge?
2: Well, it's it's a sunk cost, but I think some of my recent bids, and I think I've been reacting to a lot of the other bidding going on. Usually, like I got Marisnick for six, and I got Alvarez for nine. And usually, I found in the a thousand dollar bidding system, I'm constantly being under bidding. I've always preferred the a hundred dollars. I have preferred the Vickery kind of format, and the a thousand dollar budget line to me is a bit of a crapshoot. So I saw, I've been seeing names where I thought they were questionable pickups for 70 a $100, 150 going off the board, so I felt like, okay, this player's going to get, they just acquired him, they're going to give him some playing time, this is what the league's going to do. I was wrong. <laughs> some of those cases with Delmonico and Mabin, this people didn't bid that way, or they didn't have the same need that I had for outfield spots. So that may be way more accounting for, okay, maybe I should have, before I made that aggressive bid, I should have verified how many people are actually going to need this outfielder this coming week. So, I mean, yeah.
0: Well, the other part of it is, too, you you can't take it with you. Like, if you finish the year with, you know, $400 unspent, it's not like they're going to mail you a check and you can go buy yourself some pizzas or something. It's useless to you. And there's a school of thought also, Rob, that says – you might as well spend it early because you're going to get the stats for the whole year rather than waiting till July or August or however that thing works. Uh, when you looked at Mariznick, you mentioned you got him for six bucks, which was a great deal. What was your thinking again, another Houston outfielder, a guy who's scrambling a little bit for playing time, what were you looking at there?
2: Well, I mean, I just needed to fill in at the time. I think I think I brought him because of this. Picks in my outfield situation, and I think Pierce went down, and I had a couple different holes. I think actually Pierce, there was a couple of holes I needed to fill, and he's somebody with power, speed, he was seeing this. I know he's not playing full-time, but he hits fairly well against lefties, so I figure I'd give him a shot. I think he's playing over his head right now, but, you know, he was right in the right way, used against lefties. He can surprise with the occasional homer, occasional steal, so he's a nice guy to have in deep leagues like this just to fill in when you need them.
0: You also made a really aggressive fab bid on Hansel Robles of the Angels. You you put in a $370 bid because of the unsettled Angels bullpen. Uh, going kind of over the same thing, but how did you calibrate the 370 seemed like a reasonable bid on the news that Hansel Robles uh, of the Angels might be in line for some saves?
2: Well, I my sense was that I believe I don't recall who was chased the previous week for or previous weeks for a closer, but there was fairly aggressive bid, four or five hundred dollar range. So that's kind of where I put that bid. And to put my perspective, I had Allen, so I'm completely devoid of saves at that point. Once he went down, once he was ineffective, so I needed to make I needed to make sure I got a guy who I was pretty sure would be the guy to be. Saved. Even though, even though Butri has the uh, has the better skills, it seems like they want to use him more uh, high leverage situations, and they prefer to use Robles in the ninth inning kind of stopper save kind of role. But I, it seemed like Robles was going to be the guy, so I did accordingly. I think he's the type of guy who could actually keep the job. But on the other hand, he's still I'm a long time suffering Mets fan, and I know what he does. I know. He stole a massive fly ball all hour, and he's suppressing fly balls at a very high rate, right? Home runs at a very high rate compared to his history. So I'm praying there isn't that much of a connection maybe this year. <laughs> Basically, what I'm trying to do is ride him out as long as I can. We'll see how that goes.
0: You also mentioned having fabbed uh, Nicky Delmonico of the White Sox. He's had a home run and five RBIs for you in just 42 at-bats, which is great performance, a little low on the on the OBP side. Was that pretty much what you were expecting, or has he exceeded your expectations?
2: Um, I mean, he's, he's, Delmonico is one of those guys who, in the minors, he he's, he's, has this skill set where he makes contact, he has great patience, OBP, power, and then... And then you and then he hasn't translated it to the majors yet, so I'm still hopeful that based on those skills, maybe he'll translate. but the amount of the fact that he's not performing for my team and that Jimenez is coming back, and that it's questionable as to how much playing time I'll have going forward with Charlie Tilson around, but i don't I think Tilson's more of a fourth outfielder long term, but so there's a little so I'm, I'm definitely open to upgrading off of him, benching him, and or if I need to, if other options come along, cutting him. So it's, I, I took a chance on, based on what he was, he was crushing AAA with great skills, so I was hoping maybe this time he would get it. So.
0: That's an interesting thing to do, is look at uh, established or older players who are doing better in AAA or in the minor leagues in general than they had been, especially in skills areas, because if they are, as older players, you kind of tend to be more willing to believe that they are figuring things out. And we use that expression a lot. They're figuring it out. And and baseball's hard. We have to, uh, we have to understand how difficult it is and how difficult it is, especially for a guy, I bet uh, Nicky Delmonico or any of these guys was by far and away the best player in his town and in his high school. Maybe when, if he went to college or started out at every stage of the, of his baseball career, doing whatever it is he's just doing, he's been the best guy on the field. And all of a sudden, he gets to a certain point in the minor leagues where he's not the best guy on the field, and he is he does have skills gaps that can be exploited by the better quality of competition. It's a ruthless meritocracy. And I think young players probably have a harder time making those adjustments than players who are a little bit older. So if you do see that skills change happen at the minor league level, if with an older player, a slightly older player, you don't want to wait till you know a guy who's 32 or anything. But if the players had a, a few years in the minors, sometimes we tend to discount those guys and maybe we shouldn't.
2: Yeah. I mean, I mean, in Demoniaco's case, he's a guy who was, you know, look, 2017 was walking 14% of the time. He yeah, had like a 262, 373, 42 kind of line, and he's doing that again. And basically the same thing again this year in the minors and showing power, but then when he gets to the majors, first time he strikes out 25% of the time and doesn't walk anymore. This year he's striking out almost 40% of the time. So I know he's battling a shoulder injury, so I'm wondering if that's possible part of the problem, but it looks like he's Either they have his number at the major level, he just can't catch up, or he's just completely pressing and something's just he hasn't let himself calm and make that adjustment. I don't pretend to know what his what what will get him there, but I I've seen you know, I've seen established skills in the minors but you know, he maybe he just doesn't have the talent for the majors.
0: That raises an interesting point. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Rob Liebowitz from uh, Roto Heaven and the Telt Wars American League League that we both play in. And since we're talking about Dick, Nick Delmonico, he does have that uh, little burst of power right out of the gate that ha- has helped you, but his on-base percentage, I mentioned, uh, last time I checked, it was under 300, uh, actually well under 300, and at a certain point, you mentioned that you may, you may eventually be forced to decide that he just doesn't have the skills to make it and be successful in Major League Baseball. But that raises a question about whether you, whether you hang on or cut bait. And I'm wondering, how do you make that decision about a single category or multiple categories? What is it going to take for Nicky Monaco to finally earn his way out of your favor?
2: Well, I think right now, I think he's heading for my bench this coming week, as it is. I have open spots that I can fill. But um, it, it's tough in a league like this because, I mean, especially in single-A only leagues where there aren't that many options available to you to replace guys who are actually playing. So if Delmonico is playing, I want. I don't want to, and I think he has upside, I don't want to not give him a shot to maybe just hang in there and figure it out. But at this point, he didn't play yesterday. It, it might be time just to bench him, and le, and I have some other options on my roster. So maybe give those guys who are hitting and just go with, <laughs> hate to play the hot hand, but I don't really have a hot hand, but play somebody else or look on the free agent market and see what's available.
0: Yeah, I talked a couple of weeks ago in my master notes column about the idea of opportunity cost, and I think that's what these kind of decisions come down to a lot of times. Is for now it doesn't cost you anything. There's there's no lost opportunity by keeping him on your reserve, and at some point maybe there will be a, a chance for you to suppose that uh, you know, for instance, you you get another uh, uh, Jordan Alvarez type of player who does end up playing in the big leagues and and doing well and all of a sudden it changes your calculus right because now you have a slot on your active roster you have to fill which means now you have to maybe push a guy down onto your reserve who's better than Nicky Delmonico and adios Nicky
2: exactly I mean right now on my reserve roster I have a bunch of players who are part-time guys so for him to get pushed fully off my roster would have to be finding somebody who I think is going to, either going to start in the near future or is actively starting. So, I mean, that that, that would be basically the decision-making process. Is this guy playing is who I, I what I need right now are people for producing because my, my offense is in the middle tiers here and it needs some help. So I need to be able to make, constantly make moves.
0: There's always the question when we're thinking about hitters, the the counting stats versus the ratio stat, because the ratio stat can actually be hurt. He, a, a bad player can push you down in the category. The only way a, a counting stat player can is if he's relatively worse than everybody else, but... The low OBP, low batting average guy can actively hurt you, and that's even more important in pitching because they have the two ratio categories. How does that fact affect your decision making in deciding if and when you're going to cut a pitcher, especially a starting pitcher?
2: Um. Well, let's. You know, I'll I'll take a take somebody on my top roster right now to to work it through. Right now, I have uh, Tyler Skaggs. His year is over five, and his home run rates are up. But, you know, his strikeout walk skills are still the same. So what I basically try to do is say, okay, this guy has a five. You're a... I I have a good, great faith in my overall pitching staff for some strange reason. I shouldn't have faith in pitching too much, but uh, but I actually like what I've assembled in terms of my starting staff. So, but Skag is a guy who is still displaying mostly good skills. So I look at his base skills and say, okay, this this is a guy who should be pitching better, but on the other hand, what else is going on? I see his velocity is down. He's been injured once the season already. He's letting up more home runs, a lot more home runs than he has in the past. I mean, I don't know if that's the new normal for him, but I certainly a 5 ERA is still not acceptable in for helping me with a, a team that has a ERA a, team ERA under 4. So so it's like basically when I see enough skills go away, that's when I make that decision, say this guy can't be on my active roster anymore, or at least can't be on my roster at all if I see some sort of change in skill. One of the things I often look at are changes in walk rates. This often I, That's often a good precursor for a potential elbow injury or something. like that. If I see any dramatic changes in walk rates, I red flag that.
0: Yeah, I was looking at Tyler Skaggs just the other day myself, and I noticed that his strikeout rates are down and his walk rate is up slightly from last year. And as a result, his strikeout-to-walk ratio has been suffering. But at the same time, when you look at his expected ERA metrics, and depending on whether you use FIP or XFIP or Sierra, they're all around 4.5. If he if he did correct his performance to a 4.5 ERA, would that be good enough to hang on on your roster?
2: They would be... Well, I mean, he has the opportunity. Has I would probably give him a chance if he actually improved to that point, and then maybe if he showed some progress in the strikeout race, I'd certainly keep him on the team, whether he would be on my active rotation. He might be more of somebody I would stream week to week, depending on who he faces.
0: Well, Rob, this has been interesting so far. Can you take a breather, come back in a few minutes after we do some business and get our player news done? Rob Leibowitz blogs at rotoheaven.com and plays in the Tout Wars AL-only league with me. He'll be back a little later on in the show. Coming up, our Market Watch reports on player news from the National League and the American League. It's Nick and Jock, next on Baseball HQ
1: Radio. Gibson swings and a fly ball to deep right field. This is got to be a home run. Unbelievable. Home run for Gibson and the Dodgers have won the game five to four. I don't believe what I just saw. I don't believe what I just saw. Is this really happening, Bill? It is happening, and they've got to help him home. The third-place coach, uh, Joe tunnel had to give him a little push, and all the Dodgers are around home plate. I don't believe what I just saw. One of the most remarkable finishes to any World Series game. A one-handed home run by Kurt Gibson, and the Dodgers have won it to four and i am stunned bill i have seen a lot of dramatic finishes and a lot of sports but this one might top almost every other one baseball hq radio
0: and welcome back to baseball hq radio i'm patrick Davitt. time now for our market watch player news reports Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League news, and leading off, it's our National League report and our old friend, Baseball HQ analyst Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio.
3: Thank you, Patrick. It's always good to be here.
0: Let's start in Colorado, where the Rockies um, have a lot of moving parts uh, because of some roster changes. They finally put Garrett Hampson owners out of their collective misery by sending him back to AAA. They recalled utility player Pat Velika. We'll start with this. Uh, We'll get to Velika in a second, which shouldn't take too long. Uh, But first, Rob Carroll covered the story for playing time today. What made the Rockies finally pull the pin on one of the most heralded prospects in the run-up to this season, Garrett Hampson?
3: Well, Hampton hasn't looked anything like the guy who hit two seventy-five in a forty-at-bat trial with the Rockies in two thousand eighteen. Before this season, fantasy owners glommed on to his stolen base potential, in particular, one hundred twenty-three stolen bases and one hundred forty-six attempts in three minor league seasons, a three eighty-nine on-base percentage, and he looked very good in spring training as well, stealing a bunch of bases in the spring and hitting fairly well. But the two thousand nineteen version has been much less patient, four percent walk rate, and his paltry fifty-seven percent. Expected hard contact rate shows how overmatched he was once the season started. And his speed has very rarely surfaced. Only three stolen base attempts and one successful steal.
0: Yeah, I thought he was uh, really impressive in spring, a 389 on base percentage. And it sounds like uh, Hampson could still be an interesting long-term investment, but he definitely has some work to do. What about Valaika? Uh,
3: Valaika was on the opening day roster, but got demoted later in April in a playing time crunch. Uh, was insanely hot in 17 games in Albuquerque with a 1066 OPS, including eight home runs. The overriding concern with him is excessive swing and miss, a contact rate barely over 50% earlier this season in 27 at Bassett, Colorado. And he's only improved to a 64% contact rate in Albuquerque in spite of the other, the other impressive stats. Uh, on the other hand, they can plug him into all four infield positions and that, uh, that gives him a bit of a boost.
0: Yeah, not uh, unlike fantasy teams, real teams like that position flexibility because they want to carry so many pitchers. Uh, All of this still leaves a couple of obvious candidates for playing time. Let's start with Ryan McMahon. What's the effect on his playing time with the uh, Hampson demotion and the Valaika promotion?
3: Well, Valaika probably won't be playing second base as often as Hampson did, so McMahon should take over as the reader there. Our Colorado analysts are bumping uh, Ryan McMahon's playing time up by 10%. He has not been a world beater either, a mundane 700 OPS, three home runs through 99 in at, 99 at-bats through Wednesday. Uh, so if he can maintain his lineup spot, we have him projected for 11 home runs the rest of the way and a great four stolen bases.
0: You know, four stolen bases doesn't sound like much, but in these days, four stolen bases isn't nothing.
3: And that's right. It could make a difference in the, in, the, in the outcome of standings at the end of the season. You're right.
0: And finally, as if they didn't have enough uh, moving parts, Brendan Rodgers, maybe the best prospect in their entire system, was called up on Friday. At the same time, a shortstop Trevor Story left a game earlier this week, some kind of knee problem. This all adds to the muddle. Uh, what's going to happen with Brendan Rodgers?
3: Yeah, Rodgers has, has ascended very steadily through the Colorado organization, uh, slashing 296, 353, 505, in 1,518 at-bats in five minor league seasons. So he's had... Had a, 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 st- a solid minor league seasoning, to put it mildly. <laughs> For a thorough analysis, uh, we, we talked about him in our call-ups column. What's not been determined yet is how often he'll be in the lineup and where he'll play. As you said, Trevor Story had to exit the May 15th game with a left knee contusion. It's not known if he'll miss any time, but Rogers would be the obvious fill-in there. He's actually played more second base than shortstop. Uh, in Albuquerque, so he could push Valalica to the bench or back to the minors and enter into some sort of job share with McMahon. Um, We've already accounted for a degree of playing time for Rogers in 2019, and this might just be a kind of get acquainted call up uh, to see how he does. Uh, But if he excels, the impact could quickly become very significant. So it's something to track and keep an eye on. We're not changing playing time projections at this point.
0: Yeah, you know, the the Rockies have the reputation of being very slow with promoting their young players, even when it looks like they probably should be a little quicker, but uh, we shall see. Uh, as a Trevor Story owner, uh, I'm very... Worried whenever one of those kind of guys who's such an important player on your team. But as you said, they're calling it a contusion for now, which is a $100 word for bruise. Uh, let's hope uh, a bruised knee is nothing to sneeze at. It, it hurts, but it doesn't sound so far like it's a real serious thing. And let's keep our fingers crossed. In Milwaukee, the Brewers also made a middle infield call up Keston Hiura from Triple A on Tuesday and placed third baseman Travis Shaw on the 10-day injured list with a wrist problem. Uh, Milwaukee also designated infielder, outfielder, utility guy, Corey Spangenberg for assignment. Tom Kephart covered the story for Baseball HQ's playing time today. What are the ramifications of all of this?
3: Well, Hire is Milwaukee's top prospect and will play second base at least until Shaw returns, with Mike Mustaka sliding from second to third. Shaw's wrist injury is a recent disclosure, although his poor start to the season – opens a possibility he might have been playing through the injury for a while. Shaw had a BPV, a negative BPV, a 190 expected batting average, a contact rate that's been in the mid-70% for the last few seasons, down to the mid-60s this year. Uh, meantime, Moustakas has sustained his customary power in production, despite his spring training fielding switch from third to second. It's pretty early to make any guesses about Hyura, but he hit a ton in AAA, an 11.06 OPS, and 11 home runs at 129 at-bats. He had a a great first game when he came up. If he keeps raking like that, Milwaukee might find it difficult to send him back to the farm. On the other hand, on Thursday night when uh, the Brewers put up 11 runs, uh, Hyora went 0 for 5 with four strikeouts. So uh, at this point, uh, the jury is out. Hard to tell exactly what he's going to do.
0: Yeah, and uh, I was talking about this with somebody else recently, Nick, and and when you're trying to figure out what Milwaukee's going to do with their call-ups, they're a loaded team and they have playoff aspirations so they they first they can afford to be patient with guys like Hira in the minor leagues like getting them back down there once the they they get their regular guys back and their regular guys are really good so it's not like they're you know begrudgingly sending Hyura back to the minors because they've uh, they're bringing up a Pat volika for instance they're they're going to get Travis Shaw back, and Travis Shaw, despite his difficulties this year, is a really good player. And when you're running for the playoffs, I think that their uh, interest is going to be let's go with what we, w- let's dance with who, who who brung us kind of thing. Uh, still another prospect getting a call in Atlanta, third base outfielder Austin Riley, the number three prospect, according to Baseball HQ scouting analysts has been called up from AAA. He's likely to replace outfielder Ender Inciarte, went to the I.L. with some back issues. Phil Hertz covers Atlanta for playing time today. Where does Austin Riley fit into a competitive Atlanta lineup?
3: Well, Riley had been playing the outfield at AAA with 13 homers, 31 RBIs in the last 18 games at AAA Gwinnett. Questions will start when Inciarte returns, which could create a logjam with Donaldson, Juan Camargo, and now Riley Possible at the hot corner, and in the outfield where Riley will also be jostling with Camargo and NCRD. So two positions, four candidates. Um long term Riley's a fantasy gym. For two thousand nineteen, his value may turn on how well he does while NCRD is out.
0: Nick, should owners take a look at this call-up of Riley by Atlanta as an indication the team is getting tired of waiting for NCRD to come around?
3: No, owners should really take care before writing off NCRD. He's only batting two eighteen but an unlucky 26% hit rate on balls in play. Uh, expected batting average of 278. We're projecting him for 280 once he returns to action. He's also a plus fielder, and we can't ignore the added value that a top glove artist brings to the team. So don't write NCRD off at this point.
0: Yeah, I feel the same way. And if anybody in your league is dropping NCRD out of frustration or because of roster crunch or whatever, uh, Don't be sleeping on him. I I think he's underperforming for sure. Uh, Nick, San Francisco optioned pitcher uh, right-hander Tyler Bede to AAA and called up right-hander Sean Anderson. I happened to watch Anderson's debut start that night, and he looked pretty sharp. He threw five innings, uh, gave up a couple of runs, but only two hits and five strikeouts, but three walks. So Sean Anderson, can he stick in San Francisco? and What's his fantasy potential?
3: Well, it certainly was a solid first start, and Anderson could also become, uh, also became that night, the first Giants pitcher since 1900 to record two hits in his first big league game, so he could do it with the bat as well. Uh, San Francisco got Anderson from Boston in the 2017 trade for Eduardo Nunez, was rated as the Giants' number six prospect heading into 2019, and wasn't really tearing up the PCL at 411 ERA. Uh, one, two, nine, whip in seven starts, 37 strikeouts in 35 innings. Um, Tyler Bede was demoted to make room for Anderson on the active roster, but it's a previously demoted Derek Rodriguez's rotation spot that is up for grabs. And Anderson provided the Giants with certainly a very favorable first impression in terms of taking over that spot. But it's dangerous to assume anything after one game. Uh, Bede, on the other hand, had compiled a 330 whip in three appearances, and that is right. A 330 whip, not ERA. So Anderson could get a few chances to stick before they uh, decide he's not working.
0: Maybe Anderson and Madison Bumgarner can uh, have a bet to see who's the better hitter at the end of the season. They they both seem there to swing go. at that way. <laughs> <one. laughs> Uh, finally, Nick, in the Speculator column this week, analyst Ryan Bloomfield reminded us of the A-Rod slash Adalberto Mondesi 10-step path to stardom. Might be a good time to review that in light of all the call-ups we've been talking about, the Hampton Demotion, the uh, Brendan Rogers Promotion. Uh, this is a, an interesting column by Ryan Bloomfield.
3: It is indeed a very fun column by Ryan and a good job of reminding us how the path from prospect to star is very seldom a straight upward line. Uh, if you go back and look at Alex, at Arod, uh, that's certainly true. If you look at uh, Aldo Beltrán, Mondesi is the latest young player to demonstrate the roller coaster path that kids tend to follow, uh, and he also had some other current prospects who were at various points on the path.
0: Well, I remember this vaguely, but maybe you can run us through the ten steps of the uh, ten step path to stardom.
3: All right, step one: prospect puts up phenomenal minor league numbers. Ryan mentioned uh, first baseman Jordan Alvarez of Houston. Ryan Edditch at Galen of Miami are doing it right now. Okay. Step two. The media machine then gets oiled up, but uh, Ryan mentioned Keston Iura, and maybe our discussing Hyra this morning is uh, oiling up that media machine. So we're part of that step. Step three, the prospect gets called up, but he struggles, year one. Ryan pointed to uh Toronto third baseman Vladimir Guerrero and Pittsburgh Shortstop call up Cole Tucker. Uh step four, prospect gets demoted. Uh, Tampa first baseman uh, Nathaniel Lowe, who's gone back, and Washington's shortstop Carter Keboom were examples, who've already gone back this season. Step five, prospect tears it up in the minors, year two. Uh, Houston outfielder Kyle Tucker. Step six, prospect gets called up but struggles, year two. Uh, San Diego catcher Francisco Mejia is the poster boy here. Step seven, prospect gets demoted again. In step eight, the media turns their backs, and fantasy leaguers reduce their expectations and figure this guy just isn't going to make it. Ryan's example, St. Louis right-handed pitcher Alex Reyes. Step nine, prospect tears it up in the minors year three, and the public shoves its collective shoulders and yawns, uh, and Ryan says the description fits perfectly. Texas outfielder Willie Calhoun. And step ten, prospect promoted year three and explodes. Some lucky fantasy leaguer lands a franchise player for under $5. Uh, The example here is uh, Chicago White Sox third baseman, second baseman, Johan Makata, hitting 289 with nine home runs and four stolen bases in his third major league season.
0: And Ryan cautions that just because a guy is at step three doesn't mean he's necessarily going to make it to step 10. But the guys who do make it to step 10, Nick, are the guys often who have run through this entire process. And it's important to note, Johan Moncada, I thought was a really good example. Willie Calhoun came up, had a home run in his first game uh, back in the major leagues. These are guys that if they've been through these ups and downs, sometimes uh, we start to focus on the downs and ignore the ups. And maybe that's a mistake sometimes. And for me, of course, step 11, thanking you nick for another great national league news report real insightful we'll catch up again in a week's time
3: all right thank you patrick
0: harold nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst with BaseballHQ.com and covers the national league beat for us here at baseball hq radio now let's turn to the american league baseball hq director of news and analysis jock thompson jock welcome back to the show hi pd Seems like every week we talk about another injury hitting the New York Yankees. This week, no exception. And I have to say, this might be one of the worst so far, at least in terms of playing time that got lost. Uh, Third baseman Miguel Andujar is going to have season-ending surgery on a right shoulder early next week. Uh, He tried to play through the uh, issue, Jock. Tried it third. He couldn't do that. They moved him to DH. Nothing worked. Uh, He's going to have the surgery after all. Giovanni Urshela has been surprisingly successful at third base in Andujar's spot so far, but he's a journeyman at best. Uh, we know him up uh, in uh, near Toronto, of course. He played here not too spectacularly. Matt Dodge covered the story for playing time today. Jock, what's the outlook for the rest of 2019 at the hot corner?
4: Well, at least for now, Matt has Urshela uh, with uh, a lot of playing time for the duration for the remainder of the season, another 350 at-bats, uh, 450 for the season which is kind of intriguing given the the, um, performance Urshela's put on so far. Um, His bat does look healthier than it's ever looked versus major league pitching. He's got a 330 batting average through 94 at bats, a lot of hard contact. Uh, Even the power indices are up noticeably, though two home runs look subpar. The first risk with Urshela is that the version of his old self resurfaces, which is actually what the current baseball HQ projections uh, uh call for right now just five home runs and a and a 250 batting average over those final 350 at bats uh seems a little at odds with the the playing time projection than the uh the actual performance projection but hey that's the way it goes sometimes when uh, when a guy is is doing something that he's never done before the uh, the o- other obvious threat obviously is that once some of the other Yankees walking wounded return or shell is going to lose his job uh uh, Didi Gregorius is still projected to play shortstop sometime before or after the All-Star breaks when he when returns from his uh, his IL stint. He's, that's going to push Glaber Torres over to second base. And then Urshela has to battle with G- DJ lemehu for third base time. And, of course, if there's a better third base option on the market, the Yankees will be involved in that as well. They always are. So while Urshela is impressed, to me he looks like a decent short-term option maybe over the next few weeks. But there's plenty of issues longer term with him.
0: The one thing about Urshela that jumps out at me, Jock, is you mentioned his hard contact index at Baseball HQ is really high, uh, historically high. In fact, I have to say, I think it's so high that I just can't buy it. I think this looks like very much like a short-term thing. His hard contact rate as a percentage of batted balls for the last three years before this year, 22%, 24%, 21%. F- this year, 44%. And I just can't believe that in the long haul, a guy is all of a sudden going to double his hard hit rate and uh, basically eliminate all the soft contact that he's been famous for making up till now.
4: Yeah, no, I think you're right. Um, I think short term, um, you know, I think the best you can hope for is, is to squeeze a, a, a few more weeks out of, out of this stretch, whatever he's doing now, because longer term, there's, there's all kinds of risk to, to his performance and his playing time.
0: Interestingly for a guy who's uh, swinging the bat with some authority, he's only got two home runs so far in what is a pretty friendly hitter's park. So there's a bit of a cautionary note. And the other cautionary note, I think, is that hard hit rate, which is looks clearly unsustainable to me. It's higher than anything uh, you could really expect of any big league ball player. Has and it has pushed his hit rate up to really uh, astronomical proportions, almost 40% of his balls in play are going for hits, and we can't expect that to continue. So it looks to me, when I look at uh, Giovanni Urshela, what I'm looking at is a guy that we're just basically holding on to a ticking time bomb and the, when it explodes you're going to be looking at you know a 230 batting average very little power uh, the usual thing in other words
4: yeah no it'll be interesting um, the one other thing he's got going that we haven't mentioned for him he does have a good glove he's always been a good defender but um yeah this is so unusual so out of the norm for what he's normally done that I I can't I, I wouldn't be relying on it either I'm not an Urshela uh, Giovanna Urshela owner
0: in a, uh, in, AL-only leagues, I can see somebody picking him up just because of the playing time. you got to get down in the uh, bottom of various barrels when you're playing single-league format, but in mixed leagues, I mean, go ahead and take a chance on him. but the, I sure wouldn't. Uh, speaking of Yankee injuries and the team's willingness to look for free agents, they did pick up a free agent, Kendris Morales, last week, and immediately put him into their DH spot, which has been decimated by injuries like everywhere else on the field pretty much for them. Uh, you and I talked about Morales when he was about to be released by the A's because they got Matt Olson back from the injured list and they had Chris Davis as their fixture in DH. Uh, how does Matt Dodge see Morales's role as the Yankees DH?
4: Yeah, I, uh, Matt's a little less uh, optimistic about Morales, and that has to do with the fact that the Yankees do have so many bodies and and and. Names They can plug in, particularly once their their injuries heal up. I think I said last week, I actually like Morales now, again, at least over the next month or two, and, and perhaps a, 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 even more so during that time in Yankee Stadium. Matt noted the same thing I did in his write-up. There's been a lot of bad luck under the hood of his, his 209 batting average and one home run performance to date. His plate skills still look solid. Uh, the hard contact rate is at near highs, and again, I've followed Morales a lot. He's he's been with the Angels. He's always been a streaky guy. He, he'd go into the trough for for four to six weeks and then come out of it. I think as a flyer, he has a a decent chance to go off in the middle of a lineup in that venue. Um, I I think the bigger questions with him, like or uh, uh, are longer terms. If and when names like Giancarlo Stanton and Greg Byrne return from the from the uh, injured list. What happens to his at-bats then? Uh, Stanton in particular is is interesting because he's already recovered from a bicep strain, but it sounds like the Yankees are still uncertain about his shoulder, and he's not yet on a rehab assignment. So it's possible that Morales' uh, Yankee at-bats have some legs, but it's still pretty uncertain, and we're just guessing here.
0: Well, the one thing that I was curious about when I heard the news, the first thing I did was I went to baseballreference.com, and I looked at his... uh, stadium splits and in the new yankee stadium uh, stadium three they call it uh, he's had 155 plate appearances Uh, take a guess on how many home runs he's hit in a very friendly home run park oh you got me
4: i don't know where you're going with this i didn't i didn't check it out
0: well just take a guess
4: um i don't know five
0: (laughs) five it is and and that's not a lot of home runs in that time. It doesn't seem like it. And his on-base percentage around 316, he's batting 250 or less, and his OPS is under 700. So if, if we're expecting Kendris Morales to hold the job, I think he's going to have to pick up the pace a little bit, and I wonder at his advanced age whether that's going to be possible. It may be worth a, a gamble, I guess, but I wouldn't I wouldn't roll a lot of uh, money on a bet on Kendris Morales being a particularly off. A productive offensive force even in Yankee Stadium.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think we're talking about flyer here. I think you and I differ uh, with respect. To, I, I, I actually expect him to go off just a little, at least in the short term. But he is a flyer. It may not happen, and it certainly may not last.
0: In Minnesota, Jock, the Twins have had some injuries of their own lately, but they got some good news with the activation of Miguel Sano from the I.L. He made his 2019 debut this past Thursday, a couple of doubles. He looked pretty good at the plate, I thought. Uh, Rick Green covers the Twins for playing time today. What's the situation with Sano and the very competitive Twins?
4: Yeah, one of Sano's biggest problems is he makes bad decisions, obviously, on and off the field. He, uh... He cut his heel during a Dominican League playoff um, this winter, and that's what led to his current DL stint. Uh, He's had assorted injuries, hamstring and knee, and off-field issues. All kinds of power and potential. Um, The nice thing for the Twins right now is he's taking Mitch Garver's roster spot after Garver was DL'd with an ankle sprain, now expected to be out for a couple of weeks. And just as an aside, that's not an an insignificant loss for the Twins. Garver's been one of the truly great surprise candidates of 2019 Sano's return also comes at a time when Nelson Cruz is out. Uh, uh, he's, he's day-to-day with a wrist injury. And he's already missed three games at DH. So we don't know where that might go. But Sano's going to get regular at-bats at third base, maybe some at first base in DH as the Twins cycle players through Cruz's spot. If there's a loser here, it's going to be Marwin Gonzalez, who's been the most of the time third baseman in uh, Sano's absence. And he's struggled for most of the season, uh, 233 batting average to date. Marwin's actually been a little better in May than he was in April. So I suspect he'll return to his old role, which is moving around the field and maybe getting four or five starts a week doing that. Uh, Minnesota has some depth, but I don't think it's going to um, get in the way of Sano getting a a good shot to return to his job full-time.
0: I'll play the devil's advocate here, Jock, just for a minute. It's not like the Twins lack for power. They are hitting home runs at a pretty regular clip. They're scoring a lot of runs. They're playing really well, and I think what their concern might be, and my concern would be, looking at him as a fantasy asset, do I go in on the bidding, Do what do I do about him, is his career strikeout rate is around 36%, and he's already struck out once in his first five uh, plate appearances so far, and if he's striking out more than a third of the time, almost four-tenths of the time, as we look forward in, into the season, I don't know how patient the twins are going to be because they just don't need the power bat. And then if if Cruz comes back and they have to play Sanoa at third base, he's not a good third baseman as we know. And it's one of those situations where if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And they get the you know, they get an extra drive shaft back or a crankshaft back and they have to figure out a way to install it into their car. But the car's going pretty good. So I don't know that Sano is going to be a lock for a lot of playing time.
5: No,
4: I don't think he's a lock at all. And, and part of it is the Twins' depth and the fact that they're playing so well this year. Um, he's going to get his opportunities, but if he can't produce more than he's produced over the last couple of years, um, you're right. He's, he's going to be in and out of the lineup at best. So um, um, he's he has an opportunity. Now he has to take advantage of it.
0: Some call-up news in Texas. Elvis Andrews got sent to the injured list, a strained hamstring, a mild strain is what I heard. Uh, the resurgent Willie Calhoun was recalled to take his place. Uh, boy, uh, I've heard Willie Calhoun's name for many of the last few years, uh, every year in preseason. It's going to be Willie Calhoun's year, and it never is. Uh, Rod Trusdell wrote this one up for playing time today. What is the situation in Texas, and what is the situation with Big Willie Calhoun?
4: Well, I just written up, Calhoun's reemerging at AAA in, in a Playing Time Tomorrow piece. And what uh, bad timing it was. Um, this is a guy whose power disappeared last year. I think he hit nine home runs and over 500 combined at-bats between uh, uh, Texas and AAA. And, and for him, that's not good. He hit almost 60 home runs in the, in the two previous years. Um, but this year, the home runs are back, and his plate skills are solid. Uh, um, the problem I thought he had was that Texas had just demoted the line of the Shields and didn't seem willing to part with the Hunter Pence's, Logan Forsythe's, and Danny Santana's that had helped fuel what is a, is a pretty amazing offensive resurgence in Arlington right now. Um, but Andrus's subsequent injury is, is an example of why Texas wanted to keep these names. I think both Forsythe and Santana are now additioning um, to. Um, to to back up Andrus when he returns. So they're going to be around for a little while. But now they have to figure out a way to get Calhoun in the lineup. Uh, he's 6 for 12 since he's been back. He's hit two home runs. Um, they're actually putting Joey Gallo in center field now and, and Calhoun at DH. Um, Calhoun looks like uh, looks like he did two years ago. So I don't know what ailed him last year. I know the ball is, is a little livelier this year. Calhoun's going to get a lot of playing time until he proves that he can't hack it.
0: Well, he was... Uh... OPSing 973 at uh, Nashville in AAA A for Texas, and gosh, he looked he looked like he was just slugging the ball with a lot of abandon and. Uh Just a few moments ago, I was talking with Nick about the uh, Ryan Bloomfield Speculator column and that whole uh, 10-step path to stardom for prospects. And Joe, uh, I should say, uh, Willie Calhoun has been one of those guys who's been up and down and up and down, and gradually the shine wears off and everybody gets tired of Willie Calhoun, and and I think that – maybe this is third time lucky, you know, it, that's the way it happens with a lot of prospects. All of a sudden, a little older, a little more in control of themselves, they figure it out, and they start bashing.
4: Yeah, and, I'm, and truth be told, uh, I'm one of the guys who gave up a little bit on Calhoun. I dropped him in uh, one of my keeper leagues, and it wasn't so much that the power had disappeared. I probably could have waited around a little bit. His plate skills were still intact, but Calhoun has to hit for power and produce plate skills to play regularly. He has no defensive value whatsoever. He's he's a clogger. Um, he's the kind of guy, if he does not hit, he will find a place on the bench or in the minors. Uh, now he's hitting again. So Willie Calhoun owners are, are, are celebrating today.
0: Well, in the minor leagues, at least, he's had pretty good plate discipline, uh, something on the order of uh... – 230 strikeouts in the minor leagues, 176 walks. And when when I read that, I was pretty surprised, Jock, I have to say, because usually guys with the big bats have much higher strikeout to walk ratios. And in his case, it uh, looks like he, he knows what he's doing around the plate. It hasn't translated yet at the major league level. I will caution you, uh, people about that. In Houston, meanwhile, uh, Colin McHugh has really struggled in the Astros rotation, and now he's been removed from it, at least temporarily, while he figures things out in the bullpen. Earlier this season, I think both of us would have thought uh, Forrest Whitley, the number one pitching prospect in the organization, would have been the favorite to take McHugh's spot in the rotation, but instead it was rookie uh, starting pitching prospect Corbin Martin who got the call, and Jock, I thought he looked pretty good in his Major League debut. He went five and two-thirds, gave up a couple of runs, three hits, three walks, and nine strikeouts in five and two-thirds looks pretty good. You wrote all this up in playing time today. What do you think we should expect from Corbin Martin and the Houston rotation?
4: Well, McHugh is still the one of the resident veterans on the staff. Um, th- th- there's still some hope that can be seen uh, in in what he's done. Yeah, his uh his uh earned run average to date is an awful 6.37. Like you said, he's had a terrible start through 41 innings. Uh um, but he's got a a four a 4.00 expected ERA and, and, and over nine strike and over a strikeout an inning uh, a 3.0 command. The problem with McHugh is his velocity has slipped dramatically uh, coming out of the bullpen and back into starting. Uh, he's down he's down around ninety miles an hour uh, and he's giving up a ton of home runs. Uh, um, a lot of home runs per fly ball. Um, he, He's going to get a chance to right the ship, but I think right now a lot of this may depend on what Martin does with his next couple of starts. He's a talented guy, um, uh, legitimate mid-rotation upside, and like you said, he looked very good his first start. He's going to get another start or two to see what happens, so uh, um, I'm kind of hedging my bets right now, but I like Corbin Martin here.
0: All during the show, we're going to be talking about the big prospect call-up week throughout baseball. Lots of guys coming up. Uh, We've talked on the show about Oscar Mercado coming up in Cleveland. Uh, We just talked about Willie Calhoun coming up. Another guy who's getting a lot of interest is Nicky Lopez in Kansas City. They called him up in the team jock they just came right out and said Lopez is going to play every day at second base to the extent that they pushed Whit Merrifield out to right field and this is not long after they were talking about bringing him back into the infield to save wear and tear on his legs so they're very uh, positive on this Nicky Lopez guy tell us more about him and tell us about what's going to happen in Kansas City as far as playing time if Nicky Lopez. Gets the benefit of what the team says is going to be a full-time job.
4: Yeah, that announcement was a little irritating to me because, for some inexplicable reason, Nicky Lopez was available in one of my deep-keeper leagues, and I didn't pick him up simply because, based on the announcement, I didn't see any room for him. Kansas City wasn't going to call him up; they weren't going to they weren't going to push Merrifield to the outfield. And of course, the next day they did exactly that. Um, Lopez is one of these polished middle infielders who does everything well except hit for power. He's going to make good contact. He's going to run. um, He's a very smart, uh, good defender. Um, I think he's going to be a fantasy asset on the bases and batting average-wise, something that most fantasy owners need right now. Um, Interesting situation, uh, Merrifield is going to move to right field, which means Jorge Soler, who's also had a very good start to the year, is going to be moved to the, or push more to the DH spot, where I think he fits better anyway. He's not a, he's not a particularly good fielder. Um, and it really makes the currently injured Lucas Duda, who had gotten 55 at bats before going down with a lumbar strain, it makes him almost unnecessary and a release candidate once he comes off the DL. The Royals actually look like a much improved offensive club now with this move.
0: I was looking at Nicky Lopez, Uh, we got some fab considerations to make, uh, all of us of course, this weekend as far as which guys we want to bid on, how much we want to bid. And uh, when I looked at Nicky Lopez in the minor leagues, what blew me away was his strikeout to walk ratio, 14.5% walk rate. 3.6% 3.6% strikeout rate, so he's he's walking four times as often as he's striking out at the minor league level, and he's had 14 plate appearances in the big league so far. Okay, it's not very much, but yeah, listen to this. His strikeout rate has doubled from 3.6% to 7.2%. Yeah. Okay, hey, fair enough. We expect that for a guy coming up. But here's the other thing. His walk rate has gone up, too. By fifty percent so he's he's not he 's not walking as much more than he 's striking out, but he 's still walking way more than he strikes out. This has got to be a very positive sign at least for his batting average and of course he brings a lot of stolen base uh potential to the to the plate as well
4: yes, plate skills in spades and he will run and uh, again in the era where in an era where home runs are plentiful and easy to find. The skill set is not. So Nicky Lopez is going to generate a lot of fab um, over this weekend.
0: Yes, he is. Uh, I think a couple of other guys will as well. It's going to be an interesting fab weekend, and I'm looking forward to participating in it. Jock, thanks very much for helping us out. I do appreciate it, and we'll catch up with you again next week.
4: Okay, PD, see ya.
0: Jock Thompson is Baseball HQ's Director of News and Analysis and our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we return, it's part two of our feature expert interview with Rob Liebowitz from RotoHeaven.com and Tout Wars AL Only. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In playing time tomorrow, analyst Alain DeLeonardis does roster forecasting on the teams in the National League East, including Howie Kendrick's ongoing run in Washington, some key players returning from injury in Philadelphia, and more. In the rotisserie gaming column, Analyst Steve Gardner looks at how finding stolen bases can be hit or miss. And in the eyes have it, scouting analyst Chris Blessing hits the ballparks to get his eyes on Minnesota starting pitcher prospects Bruzdat Gretarol and Jorge Alcala, as well as Cincinnati starting pitcher prospect Tony Santillan. And those are just three articles among dozens. A small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com. There's player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow. We have buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers. There's fantasy market analysis and injury analysis and tools like the player projections that are updated every day. We have daily dashboards and pitcher matchups and leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. Combine the tools and the content and you can improve your teams and win your leagues. And they are why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. It's time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Rob Leibowitz from rotoheaven.com and the Tout Wars AL only league. Rob, welcome back. Thanks. Rob, in your day job, you're a city planner, and of course, the worlds of cities and sports overlap when it comes to building new stadiums, but that has become more controversial over time. What do you think is the future of cities and municipal regions being willing to finance new stadiums for baseball teams and other pro sports teams?
2: You know, I I think as long as politicians and people continue to believe that the prestige of having a major sports team or new stadiums or economic drivers, it's going to happen, but I think study after study. And I did, you know, when I was doing my master's degree 20-something years ago, I did a paper on this. And study after study showed that there is no, little to no benefit from either acquiring a new team, building a new stadium, compared to all the subsidies, the tax breaks, the tax abatements that to the public that is nothing is transferred. So I, it's, it's. I think. What we need to see, as long as somewhere, some team, some other area is willing to say, hey, we want them, we want the prestige, we think this will have an economic impact, some cities should maybe not let themselves be held hostage to these uh, private teams and say, if you want to stay here, you're going to have to figure out your way to do it. And other areas are going to have to start to realize that, it is it start actually. I mean, most of these studies are 20, 30 years old, and it hasn't changed. People just have to start listening. It can't be people have to start listening to the data and saying, "This isn't the panacea. This isn't going to fix your issue. You have to let private development take care of themselves to some extent."
0: Yeah, that whole idea that uh, a, sp- a pro sports team confers some kind of world class status on the city that has it. Uh, you know, I look at the, I look at a lot of the where the pro sports teams are, and I think. Yeah, you know Milwaukee. <laughs> you know is Milwaukee a world class location because it's got a couple of pro sports teams? I mean, are people in you know London and and um, Berlin and Tokyo saying, "Oh, I got to get to Milwaukee because it's such a world class city"? Uh, is are the Miami Marlins helping the image of Miami at all? I don't know. Seems seems kind of dubious. And
2: that's why they shouldn't let themselves be a hostage. I mean, Miami people come to Miami because of Miami's culture, of its proximity to the ocean, of its a variety of things it's not baseball i mean it has a baseball culture given its high cuban population or but it's it's not something that you know it's it's something that if it left then they would it's something that you could find use that financing and that money to find something that would be more effective for them to uh gener- to improve their economy in that area
0: You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Rob Liebowitz from Roto Heaven and the American League Tout Wars League. Uh, Corbin Martin made his debut on Sunday, Rob, with the Astros, speaking of uh, their willingness to call up young players. Nine strikeouts in five and a third innings, which is a pretty nice start for your Major League career. When we assess a pitcher like Corbin Martin, though, should we be focusing on the few innings or the many strikeouts?
2: Well, I think I'm going to, I hate to do it, but I'm going to hedge a little bit. Uh, Martin was averaging about. It wasn't averaging much more than what he what he threw. Five point one innings, I think he. So he wasn't averaging much. He threw about twenty four, twenty five innings in the minors. So he wasn't averaging much more than that. So it's obvious that he's on some sort of pitch count, and that they're monitoring his workload. So to expect him to jump to six and seven innings right away would be ill advised. But on the other hand, strike, he was striking out at pretty high rates in the minors. I think he's still some guy who can strike out at least a guy in inning. So that's where I would go with him.
0: Well, he got off to a, what, 1.8 uh, strikeouts per inning in that first appearance. Uh, do you think when a team like Houston, they're a well-run, solid, smart organization, and they start looking at replacements for guys who are struggling like Colin McHugh, should color our judgment about guys like Colin McHugh?
2: Um, I'm just wondering, actually, whether... You have Colin McHugh struggling? You have Martin doing well in the minors, and then you realize just how well McHugh did in the, the reliever last year. And here is a guy who, so I actually think this improves my outlook for uh, for him. He threw 72 winning, 72 innings in relief. He had a 1.99 ERA. He struck out 94 guys in that time. His stuff just might simply be better for that role. And if he's going to be used at that kind of usage as a reliever, like he was last year, I mean that's and he's available in single-only league and possibly even mixed, some mixed leagues. He's, he might be more worth picking up. He might be a nice uh, little bargain right now.
0: I heard earlier this week, uh, Rob, that the Colorado media were reporting the Rockies. They were getting ready to option Garrett Hampson to the minors. Uh, he's been kind of a, a, a hoped-for player rather than somebody who's actually accomplished a lot. If you were a Hampson owner, though, would you take up a reserve spot to hold on to him, or are you going to drop him and start looking elsewhere? I think if you have a roster spot in an only league, you pretty much have to hang on to him and hope for the best. But in a mixed league, you've got more options. How do you calibrate that?
2: Well, mixed league, I definitely drop him. I look at him, I look at his minor league skills, and I see what, you know, he wasn't a heralded, high heralded prospect. He was somebody who's done it in the minors, and he's increased his uh, stock as he's gone along, and I look at his skill set. It's actually quite similar in some ways to the AAA version of uh, the Monaco. And I see this is a guy who's pressing on his first opportunity. So this is a guy so if you're in an only league, you hang on to him because his speed doesn't... You know, you have to keep your speed, guys. And there's there's enough skills here, there's enough history with his minor league performance that says, you know, give a guy a second chance. If he gets that opportunity, get a second chance. On the other hand, Colorado has Brendan Rogers, who I mentioned earlier. Brendan Rogers is tearing up Triple A. They have Trevor Story, Brendan Rogers natural fit, and originally probably would have been over Hampson. And if you talked about it two years ago he would have been talking about how Rogers and Hans uh Rogers as the starting second to start of the year possibly. So I think that's where you have to look. Um I think, mixed leaguers and, and only leaguers. If he's somehow still available, I think it's time to go grab Brendan.
0: The uh, Rockies recalled kind of a utility guy, Pat Valaika. How do you rate him? Is he, is he worth looking at?
2: Uh, you know, he, he's always been a journeyman kind of placeholder type. He's got some pop. He's If he gets hot and he's playing in Colorado, you ride him while you can. I mean, if you don't have any other options, when, if you were a Hampson owner, then... You don't have any other options available to pick him up, but he's not somebody who's you're going to be keeping for a long term, and you should bid accordingly.
0: And the Yankees sent Jonathan Loeziga to the I.L. with some shoulder issues. Looks like Luis Sessa is going to be the beneficiary to get some starts. How do you like Luis Sessa?
2: You know, Sessa has a good fastball slider combo, gets his strikeouts. So just on that basis alone, I'd give him a try. But I'm not sure he's effective or if he can last beyond five innings. I don't know how much, how, if he has enough of a third pitch, his changeup is good enough to be an effective starter over that many innings. So I think he might need a lot more help from his bullpen than some of the other pitchers. But he might be a really effective five, six-inning, five-or-so-inning pitcher given his other skills. So I, I would take a shot on him in the only leagues.
0: Well, it turns out he is a free agent in the American League Tout League, so uh, maybe we'll have a bidding contest for uh, Luis Sessa. I'm not saying I'm going to bid on him, but I might. just want you to bid more. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Rob Leibowitz from rotoheaven.com and American League Tout Wars. And Rob, during the season, I like to ask our experts to talk about some players they think will be boons and banes for the rest of the fantasy season. Uh, If you want to do that, let's start with your boons. Uh, These are guys you think should interest our listeners. Who's an American League hitter you think could be a boon?
2: Well, I'm sticking with Jose Ramirez, so that'll make you happy. Uh, For real, I just think he's got too many skills. I He's he's still showing that ability to get on base, he's still showing the ability to make contact, he's still showing some power, he's still showing the speed. I think he's somebody you just gotta stick with and cross your fingers and he's uh there's too much talent there. I think he could still be a thirty dollar player before the C season's all said and done.
0: In the national league, who's a hitter? who's a boon?
2: Uh, I'm I'm on the Jesse Winker bandwagon. Um he's is Babip is way suppressed where he should be he's still making that same kind of contact and power that he has. He plays in a good park uh, he was hitting about two fifteen last check I saw, so I think that's somebody to just stick with and he's he's a i i think he can still hit two ninety be a two eight two ninety hitter the rest of the way
0: over to the mound uh, who's an american league pitcher you think could be a boon
2: i still I mean, Garrett Cole has been seeing some He's – he's been up and down this season. He's had some bouts with the, the long ball. But all the all the metrics show that he's pitching much better. His strikeout rates are actually up. His velocity is actually up. Uh, so he's somebody who I think could be – he could be the best pitcher in the AL going for the rest of the season, going the rest of the way. He may have a year-eight a closing in on four right now, but everything shows that he has a, a fifth and exit or both the like about two five two 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 five somewhere in that range. So he's somebody who's still could possibly challenge for a Cy Young before it's all said and done.
0: Time to make a trade offer maybe on Garrett Cole, a guy who's uh, flirting with a four ERA. Find a disgruntled or frustrated owner. Make a decent offer though. Don't lowball him. That's what I'll say. In the National League, Rob, who's a boon pitcher.
2: Uh, Walker Buehler is just starting to get around. I mean, he's been extending out. He's thrown seven innings two times in a row, I believe, right now. And he's walked out one guy and struck out like 15 in the last two starts. So I think he's somebody who, if anybody was abandoning ship on him earlier on, I mean, I was pretty high on him in the preseason. And uh, actually, he's probably one of the main reasons my TGB FBI team did so well last year. But uh, so I'm just thinking... That, that's somebody who, if you if you discounted or soured on, that's he's coming around now.
0: Rob Liebowitz's boons, Jose Ramirez of Cleveland, Jesse Winker of Cincinnati, Garrett Cole of Houston, and Walker Buehler of the Dodgers. Let's move over to the bane's. Rob, guys, about whom you think listeners should be a little cautious? Again, we'll start in the American League. Who's a hitter who could be a disappointing bane for his owners?
2: Oh, well, right now I'm most concerned about Brandon Lowe. He's He's hitting. I think he's hitting way over his head right now. He's striking out about 36% of the time, but some, he's had this 285 he's line. He's getting on base a bit, but you know it's a pretty aggressive walk rate, and he's slugging pretty high. But I think that's. But his his is over 400. That's not something that's going to keep up. I don't think he's about to do that the rest of the season. I think you might see a correction for against him in the coming month or two. And it, it, it could be a there could be a couple months in there that are pretty dry.
0: Yeah, that four hundred three BABIP really concerns me for sure. A National League hitter who could be a bane.
2: Uh, well, for now, Tatis is currently on the DL. But I think what I'm exercising is a lot of rookie caution today. I mean, he is a little bit more going for him, because he does have some foot speed, so he might be able to maintain the batting average a little bit better than 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 Allow. But uh, <clears throat> but again, I. I see somebody who's a right-handed hitter playing in the pitcher's park, striking out about 30% of the time. I, in having that about uh, closing in on 400, so I see somebody who also is going to have some ups and downs this season. I think he's still very valuable. Because he does so many, so many different things well, but I don't think he's going to play at the current level he jumped out at for the entire year.
0: Back again to the mound. Who's an American League pitcher who could be a bane?
2: Uh I'm tempted to say Jake Odorizzi but I'm going to focus more on Spencer Turnbull who I think has he was you know he came up through the system as somebody who was considered more of a fifth starter he started the year off really strongly but he's he has his year, he's about 2-4 right now and but he his stuff is that more of a fourth or fifth starter he's stranding a lot of guys, and he's got a suppressed bab up in there, and I think he's hes just somebody I think he's yeah he may have run, run out of his string, I think, in a couple I think once he gets around the league a second time, he's somebody that uh, hitters are going to adjust to, and we might see a, a, significant, a, a significant correction against him.
0: And in the National League, a bane pitcher? Uh,
2: yeah, I think Jeff Samarja would be that guy. I mean, this is the... He, pitching well this year but he's doing it with the same skills that earned him a five and six year the last two years so i would uh, be uh if i owned him right now i'd be uh, trading or or preparing to uh wait for the eventuality that these are that these are the same skills that produced those awful results the last two years and that those those results are uh, probably going to be coming very soon
0: Rob Leibowitz's Baines are Brandon Lau of Tampa, Fernando Tatis Jr. of San Diego, Spencer Turnbull of Detroit, and Jeff Samarja of San Francisco. Rob, uh, tell our listeners where they can keep up with Rob Leibowitz.
2: Uh, well, you can find me on rotoheaven.com. I'm currently blogging there. Uh, you can also, I'm also contribute greatly every year to the uh, Peter Kreutzer's Fantasy Baseball Guide. I, I handle all the minor league content for that magazine.
0: And uh, any Twitter, Facebook, those kind of things, social media? Uh,
2: you can find follow me at, at Robert Lebowitz on Twitter and uh, RotoHeaven.com on, on Facebook.
0: All right, Rob Lebowitz, thanks so much for helping me out. Uh, great information, and I uh, hope to be able to get you back on the show sometime later in the year. Okay, thank you. Thanks for having me, Pat. Rob Liebowitz blogs at RotoHeaven.com and plays in the Tout Wars Ale Only League. When we come back, it's our weekly talk with Todd. Todd Zola coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. Back to and welcome back to baseball hq radio i'm patrick davitt time now for our regular weekly talk with todd and i'm happy to once again say to todd zola welcome back to the baseball hq radio
6: good to be back with you
0: pete one of the places that you write regularly is uh, at espn in the fantasy area and you had a terrific article that came out uh, earlier this week uh, about trading. And this is something I know we talk about it fairly regularly, but oftentimes we don't, we talk about how to start an offer. We talk about how to calculate who you might want and those kind of things. But what you're talking about in this column, which I thought was really important is how to properly assess an offer that comes to you. And uh, how, first of all, how is it different from an, uh, an offer that you made to somebody else?
6: You know what? It, it, it really isn't in that. In that you have you, you can, you need the, the same principles can go into formulating an offer, with the difference being, to, I mean, I called it next level. That may be a little bit hyperbolic. I mean, we are talking about fantasy baseball here. We're not talking about the launch codes. But to me, it is still some some thinking that generally isn't applied. So the point being, if you if you formulate an offer in this manner. You probably need to respectfully explain the thought process behind it you know what and i think a lot of i think a lot of owners will be receptive to that sort of thing because they're so used to just the cattle call need power have speed or the, the 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 silly straw man selling of their players, and it's just it's not even you know I'm in the business you know you don't have to treat me like that it's not even that I think it's and it, it doesn't matter to anybody' it's just some of the some of the sales pitches are just laughable I mean at this point, I use them as as incidental humor. I don't get insulted, I just laugh at at some of these sales pitches that you get it's it's not even you know what I do for a living it's just man this is just this is just funny, so I think some people might appreciate. And the other thing, the other reason sort of I forgot this thought is a lot of times and to this is to borrow our colleagues Chris Liss's term, don't assign me homework. When you make an offer, don't assign me homework don't have the offer being me to do homework. You know, make me an offer. So if you make a an offer and go and explain, you know, this is what would happen, you've got you've got uh, you know uh, Austin Riley on your miners this is the way you, you can activate him and, you know you need to clear a spot if you trade me this and this guy and, and whatnot and and you you have steals to to, to spare because so and so and thus and so you don't you can do it in a, in a respectful manner that the other person may actually appreciate it so that's what the, the key when we talk about some of the ways to uh, analyze the offer you can flip it as, as making an offer, but you may have to explain it because on the surface, it may not appear to be helpful and of course you you start off by talking about how important
0: it is to understand as a as a receiver of an offer that the key point you have to keep in mind is not where the two players or or the multiple players are on the player radar or on your valuation system. The key point is. How is my roster going to be after the trade is consummated as far as getting points in the
6: standings? And I think people still forget that. Yeah, there's there's two layers to that. The first, I mean, we're a little bit early. Well, we're a lot a bit early for the Classic, and I'm going to trade you a uh you know the the best base stealer in the league who's the fifth best player overall for a power guy that you know you know that that's you know that's an august trade where you, you're trading category for category but even so a trade isn't just the players involved there's balancing moves on the roster there you know the players are being replaced the players that are coming in that 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 you have to, if you're trading the guy away, if it's not even position position swap, the balancing moves. And those balancing moves need to be considered when analyzing a trade. And the next sort of the, the point in this, the kind of this is the new point that I introduced to this piece that kind of, you know, made it, you know, next level is it's not, you're not trading players. And this goes back to the beginning of the year where you're not drafting players you're drafting roster spots you're drafting the first player to to inhabit that spot so here' we're, you're trading for the first player to occupy that spot and it may not be the person it may not be the the person who ultimately occupies it so you have to keep that in mind when making a trade so it's it's again it's not just the players that are involved it's what you're going to do entirely in, in entirety with your roster after the trade if you you know I kind of alluded to maybe you can activate a minor leaguer maybe you've got Trey Turner coming back from injury maybe you you feel as though it's a you've got a scrub on the spot now and you can do better by streaming hitters or pitchers onto that spot depending upon your rules so you know in the the, the kind of overall point being Often, you can frame an offer to someone who does simply look at the names, and they feel they're getting back better names, but they're not doing the next level uh, research to see that, you know, they're just just seeing the better names, so they accept it, and they may not have the understanding that on your end, you're improving your team. So the
0: assessment, if I'm hearing you correctly, Todd, the assessment... It has to take into account all of the possibilities that are out there beyond just I'm getting A and I'm giving B. You have to be thinking about I'm I'm getting uh, player A back, he's going to fit into my roster here, which is going to create a roster opening over there, but I can stream two guys in that roster because our rules allow it, which will, and the key question here, that will make my roster overall a little stronger than it was before I started the process.
6: Yeah, and not just that, and, and you know, it, you mentioned league rules. The way the game fantasy baseball in general has tilted over the years, it's with mixed leagues with fewer teams and longer reserve lists and maybe DL lists. So it's lending themselves to the streaming of players and the availability of players. And the other sort of the, another another key point to keep in mind is sometimes you know, you, okay, well, I'm going to put this guy on that spot. And I'm gonna I'm gonna release the guy again in the trade, but I'm gonna put this guy in the spot because he's better. The, the 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 better player may not be available right now. It may just be that you you want you, you know your league dynamics. You know how things work. The a player to make the overall roster better may not be available today, but he may be in two or three or four weeks. So you you kind of hang in. You maybe you stream for the three weeks. And what usually happens is. You happen upon a streamer that is no longer a streamer. I don't know last year's Jesus alguiar Whit Merrifield from a couple of years ago. That you know, in the course of streaming, you find a gem that you end up keeping. So that does not go into the you know sort of a you know player X. You don't know who the player is when you do the math. Maybe maybe in a trade you get back two really really good players and a not so good player, and you trade away three you know very you know good players and i know that people say well you never you know the other person would never have done it because you don't trade away the best players in a deal but maybe that person had some openings and, and needed needed volume as a you know quantity over quality the point being that third lesser player you got back it's not necess- it's not that player it's it's the player on that roster spot eventually that's you're going to upgrade it you're going to continue to upgrade that spot so the algebra isn't three on three it's it's Two plus who you're gonna have on that spot versus the three you gave away. You
0: made a point a point about points leagues and how they differ from rotisserie category based leagues. And the key calculus here is you have to add up all the points based on how you're gonna fill those slots. And I think that's what you're saying. It's more than just the players involved in the trade. Of course that's going to be fairly close to a wash, but you may be able to create an opportunity by vacating a spot to fill the spot outside of the trade with some guy who's going to generate more points than the guy that is
6: currently in it. Right now, the, the you know the, the sort of overriding key with points leagues is, and I still see it, and I, I, in my head it's obvious, but for whatever reason, I think it's because so many so much uh, advice is given to. Uh, you know non points leagues in that you know points are points there's no such there's no reason if you have strong hitting and weak pitching to deal a hitter for a comparable hitter for a pitcher. Well, there might be reason which you kind of alluded to, but just in a in a, on a parallel deal, points are points it doesn't matter where you get the points from you know pitching and hitting in rotisserie leagues obviously matters because they're they're scored separately in in points leagues the common denominator is points easy for me to say but where a trade like that may be okay hitter for pitcher is as you suggested you're you're clearing the opposite spot if it's a hitter a pitcher you're clearing the other spot and depending upon your rules you may be able to backfill that spot with streaming you know the shallower the league there's players available you know, in a, in a in a daily league, you can go out there and get players every day. On a Monday and a Thursday, you can make sure that you have that spot filled, depending upon the frequency moves and that sort of thing. So, that's all. You know, your scoring factors into it as well. To to uh, pitchers get more points, to hitters get more points, and that matters. When you set your draft up, you have to do a you have to do a you know a normalization. Aspect to the ranking but in season points are points. So that's, you know, one of the biggest mistakes I see in points leagues and will be asked a question. I'm doing well, but you know my, my outfield is great. My pitching is, is I don't have a closer. You know, should I trade? Uh, I don't want to say Mookie Betts. I'm, you know, should I trade you know, a good outfielder for, you know, a closer? No, you, you shouldn't because you're getting the same amount of points and you can pick up a closer if you really wanted a closer. So, Points leagues, points are points, and it's even more important, especially in shallower leagues, to figure out the amount of points expected, because points, you know what the points are. You have to make the, uh, you have to guess what the player will do, but you know, you know the effect of the points. They're adding points. In a rotisserie league, you're not exactly sure how a player is going to influence the standings, the distribution, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Points leagues, the math is just so much easier because points are points.
0: And talking of rotisserie, in my long time playing the game, Todd, I've noticed that there's a tendency for people to kind of knee-jerk looking for ways to shore up their weakest category at the expense of their, their strongest category because they think there's some kind of balancing act going on. Mm-hmm. But I've had some fairly strange offers over the years where somebody will say to me, you seem to be really weak in saves, And so I'll trade you a closer and you give me a a home run hitter or or a starting pitcher or something like that. And especially in saves and steals, which tend to be sort of mono categories without a lot of influence on the other categories, sometimes I look at the offer and I think, but wait a second, even if you gave me the best closer in the league, Mm -hmm. I'm only going to gain a point or two because I'm already so far behind the pack. And this is truer as the season goes along, of course. And in the meantime, the guy you're asking me for, I'm going to lose a net more points than I could possibly gain from the uh, one guy that you're sending me. And in assessing that deal, it looks, on the surface, it might look attractive because, hey, I'm I'm going to pick up some saves in a category where I'm weak. But you have to be looking at, is it enough saves to move me to offset the amount of Points I'm going to lose in wins and strikeouts if I trade a a starting pitcher back, even not necessarily my top starting pitcher. It could be my number three starting pitcher for the top closer. It still doesn't make sense if it doesn't give me the points, give me the the gains I need to offset the losses I'm taking.
6: Yeah, and you know the, the the scary thing is we've talked about this very topic for as long as we've been doing the HQ Radio together, and yet there's still people out there. You know they're not getting the message, so it's still it's still a worthy topic. That's exactly right. I mean, it's it's uh, it's not trade strength from weakness. It's trade from a category where you can lose the most points to the one where you can gain the most points. And sometimes that's trading from a category you're in the you're in the lower third to improve one that you're in the upper third. And again, as you suggested, we're still too early to really pin, pinpoint categorical distribution but even so that it's still in in general i think you can you can say as you suggested with stale saves and steals being so singular that at this point of the year it's probably not wise to deal to make up for stolen bases from a power category just because you're influencing not only Home runs, but you're influencing RBIs to a huge extent, and to an extent, runs as well. Because you know, keeping in mind, more home run, more runs are scored via the home run this year than ever before. So while there's always, you know, a home runs worth a point in you know every category because it's a hit, it's an RBI, and it's a run. This year, it's even the correlation is even stronger. So even even though you, you can't even you can't do the math and say, All right, I need five steels, blah, blah, blah blah, it's, it's probably bad form, well, it's not so much of that form, a bad idea to make that so, to address a, 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 a supposed steels deficiency now because you're potentially hurting yourself in three categories.
0: I asked uh, Rob Liebowitz, our guest expert this week, this same question, and I'm curious what you think. Do you project your standings out to, to have a better idea of where you're going to be rather than where you are in the categories? Because sometimes it, you are sitting in a disadvantageous spot right now in a particular category, uh, I know on your uh, Fantasy Baseball Invitational team, for example, I don't know where you stand in, in steals, but I expect you'd be better off if if uh, if Trey Turner had played the whole year and he hasn't, but you are getting him back and he will contribute steals and that's going to change the dynamic of where you're going to finish in the category as opposed to where you are in the category right now. So do you look ahead, project the standings and say, aha, I don't need to worry about stolen bases. Where I'm going to be coming up short is strikeouts or something like that, even though right at the moment you may look pretty good in strikeouts.
6: So do you project? Yes, but I don't, I mean, project, I don't want to make it sound like I actually, I mean, I'm a numbers guy. I don't say, all right, I'm going to gonna I'm gonna get 132 steals. I say, okay, I'm going to make up some ground in steals. So as an example, there's, a, I think, you know, you're probably talking about it with some of your other uh, your regulars and guests today. It's a very big week as far as prospects coming up. So I don't have to go in on Oscar Mercado or, or Nicky Lopez, some of the prospects that are more steals oriented because I've got Trey Turner coming back. So I, I do project, but it, it's not you know, numbers and, okay, I'm going to, if I, if I get another the steals guys, I'll get another point because I don't know that yet. But absolutely, I do take a look and, and see. And the same thing with, you know, with, with, with all categories. And it's not just, it's not just, a, it's reserves. I can, I can manage my roster in such a way, but yeah, absolutely. You have to have that foresight to uh, look ahead and Figure out what you know where, where your deficiencies and weakness, especially this week, just because, uh, you know, that without with so many free agents available, and this isn't you know we're kind of ignoring the fact that or I'm kind of ignoring the fact that they all could be sent down like Carter Key Boom. but the point being, uh, the other end of it is is who else is there is there going to be someone better to make to save your Fab for coming up after this week's of influx of prospects, so you got to spend it on somebody. But the point being, yeah, I'm going to look at Trey Turner in, in that in that great fantasy baseball limitational, and I'm not going to be as focused on Nicky Lopez. I'm going to look more into Austin Riley or Keston Hurrier or someone of that ilk.
0: Well, since you mentioned the, the uh, big weekend coming up of Fab, uh, Greg Ambrosius, who runs the... Uh, uh, NFBC uh, had a tweet uh, this week that said this may be the craziest weekend of fab in NFBC history because mm-hmm. of all these guys who are coming up at once. Uh, you mentioned Hayura in Milwaukee. Uh, Willie Calhoun's got his third chance in Texas. Brendan Rogers got called up on Friday in Colorado. Uh, Nicky Lopez, you mentioned a speed speed average guy in in. Uh, at shortstop in Kansas City, maybe probably be playing second base. Uh, Austin Riley, a third base outfielder in Atlanta. We talked about him with Nick uh, earlier, and Oscar mm-hmm. Mercado in Cleveland, an outfielder who's got terrific speed. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of guys to bid on here, and that was the question you asked.
6: Yeah, and don't forget too. Well, maybe because it, it, it's, it's the NFBC. Uh, Cole Irvin and Corbin Burns came up on last Sunday, so they were not eligible for NFBC fab. They may have been eligible in other leagues, so it's all league dependent. I know you know we're NFBC centric once in a while, but you know add those two names, Corbin. You know more so Burns, uh, Houston pitcher than Cole Irvin. Although if you don't have a lot of fab, you know you may have to backdoor Cole Irvin onto your roster and hope that. the the league takes a little while to get used to him because he's not a flamethrower as, as I'm sure the prospect analyst and and discuss will, well, that you talk about, we'll discuss. But anyway, um, yeah, the, I was, I was curious what people would, would, would say. And I think we're about halfway. We will probably get another 10 or 15 people chiming in, but I'm, I'm I'm surprised at the number of people that are on Nicky Lopez. And, it's not so much I'm I'm down for Nicky Lopez. It's just you know the uh and Austin Riley uh, to borrow what what our friend Scott Pianowski likes to say they have more category juice. But Nicky Lopez has the uh, the clearest path to playing time, has got a high floor with his plate skills, and will run, especially because the Royals do nothing but run, and their their offense is actually middle of the pack. And take a look at Edelberto Montese's RBI. He's pacing to around 110, 115 RBI. So to to, to downgrade the Kansas City offense because they, we don't think they're going to score runs. Who knows? We're a quarter of the way through. Their 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 pace may wane, but to date, the offense isn't their problem. They just don't have pitching yet. And you know they obviously could use another slugger in today's day and age. And maybe they'll get one when they're ready to compete again. But point being lopez will score some runs so i'm a little surprised that he is so popular at this point um, i think that you know i kind of alluded to the the point earlier in that there's going to be people out there that's saying a prospect is a prospect be careful don't overbid but the the counter to that is like i said who are you going to bid on you're going to wait you know it, it's all speculation at this point so do you bid on one of these players that has some upside or do you wait and you know maybe have a look for a safer bid later? I don't know. So I think at this point, you have to bid on one of these guys. And we're, we're talking about playing time. I just did a piece for Rotowire. We're talking about Travis Shaw and his struggles and talking about uh, – the other name will come to me in a moment uh, – Andre Anciarte and his struggles. That may lead the you know – we're talking Keston Heria and Austin Riley – if they hit well in the next couple of weeks, right, right now we're saying Lopez has a clearer path to, to playing time, but these guys could could I don't want to say Wally Pip, but they could they could put a veteran down uh, to the you know to, to a reserve role, an established veteran to a reserve role in the next couple of weeks, and they both have got the you know recent success and the pedigree to do just that. So I'm not gonna, I mean, the, to me the upside is there of of, of hitters like Huria and riley so yeah you gotta be carter keboom just went down and, and and nate lowe just went sent down but you can't let that cloud your view who else are you gonna who else are you gonna bid on these are the cream of the crop as far as potential players you know potential upside
0: yeah you said corbin burns i think uh corbin martin in houston Corbin martin
6: i'm sorry corbin martin yeah. yes. right so
0: I think when, when I look at the list, a lot of it is kind of like assessing trade offers, as we talked about earlier, in that when you look at these players, for the most part, they seem to offer a different kind of uh, opportunity. Uh, Willie Calhoun, obviously a power guy, not a lot of speed, probably not a lot of help in batting average. Uh, Brendan Rogers might be a bit more of an all-purpose all guy. Lopez, more of a speed and average guy. Riley, a power guy, some average support as well. And Mercado is more of a speed guy, as I said. So you need to look at how each of these guys fits into the roster that you're going to be putting him in and how the arrival of his stats, if you presume what his stats are going to be, is going to move you in the categories. And we keep coming back to that same, to that same idea. It might even be that you look at them in a, in a, in a uh, vacuum and you say, of these guys, I think Brendan Rodgers is the best prospect overall. But you may, if you take a look at your roster, you may think. But what I need is speed. I got power covered, and I'm at the bottom. It looks like I'm going to be at the bottom of a clump of stolen base guys, where I could pick up six or seven points in the category. Which means, as much as I like Brendan Rodgers, maybe I need to be looking at Mercado or Lopez or um, one of the one of those two speed type guys.
6: No, absolutely. Now we're still early. You can still manage around it, but sure, you can. Especially position. I mean, not only just just um, not only statistical contribution. I kind of had some fun. You mentioned ESPN. I write the daily notes for ESPN, and what we do is we go through each position by position every day for players that are likely available with a good matchup. And I kind of had some fun with this with, with today's Fridays, in that you can literally make almost an entire team of call ups, and that they play different positions, so you can you can address positional deficiencies. All right, so maybe you know if you're weak in, weak in the middle infield, but you're still okay. I mean, let's go with, with with corner because Riley's a better power guy. You're okay with power, but you're deficient at the corner. All right, well, even though Riley gives you power, maybe you still go for it, go for it because he fits in position, and you still have a little little less than three quarters of the season. To let the categories play out, so you, you're 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 assessing positions, not just statistical needs. So it, it, it goes both ways, and that's what, to me that's what's going to make this 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 week of fab even more fun. Is literally, I mean, L- Lopez qualifies at short. You mentioned he's playing second, qualifies at shortstop. Pierre is playing second. Riley is playing the outfield, but he qualifies at third. Uh, you already you mentioned Mercado, uh, Willie Calhoun are outfield. So it's just it's kind of cool, you know, coincidentally cool how they play different positions.
0: Yeah, and you got to be careful not to paint yourself into a corner on your positions just because you think you 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 like the prospect. He comes up and suppose uh, you you put a big bid in on Willie Calhoun or Mercado, outfield only type guys, and and they get on your roster. and You think, oh look, aren't I aren't I lucky? But you left out the fact that you've got an outfielder on reserve uh, who's going to be coming back in two weeks and is going to create a roster squeeze that you can't solve without dropping a potentially productive player. And you want to really avoid that situation at all times. So it sounds basic, but sometimes in the excitement of the moment. And especially, I should say, in a situation where you're putting in bids on all of them and maybe you get your third choice and it's the outfielder that you really can't fit in. So don't even put a bid in on a guy if you haven't got a
6: long-term place for him to play on your roster. Yeah, if you've got Malik Smith, who just was recently reactivated, you probably don't need to go heavy on Oscar Oscar Mercado. The uh, the name uh, we left out was Jared Walsh playing first base for the Angels you know, one of my one of my biggest misses this year, early on, as far as projections go, is Justin Bohr, who I really thought would would thrive in Los Angeles with the reduced with the easier easier hit home run. The park's still the same, but the, the home run line was lowered. I thought that he would thrive in that atmosphere, and he and he hasn't, and he's been sent down with Jared Walsh being called up. Now, don't worry, he's he's not going to be a reliever, and and if you're worried, if you if if you're in a league that wants his three innings of relief. God bless you. He's a batter and could be given a shot. And the Shohei Otani, Albert Pujols, and now Walsh competing for the playing time at first base and designated hitter. The Angels are saying Otani probably won't need time off until September to rehab the pitching, but we'll see how that plays out. Uh, Pujols is Pujols. So at least early on, I'm thinking Walsh will get a similar opportunity that Borgot at least playing against right-handed pitching. And if you, if you're low on fab or if you, you you don't, if you want to save fab for the, you want to be competitive at this week and also sort of save some for later, maybe you go a little bit lower on a Jared Walsh. You get something at the, at this point, but you still save some because everybody, you know, we just mentioned five guys, you know, half your league is going to be short, you know, a couple, you know, 20, 30 percent of their fat, maybe, uh, maybe that's the way to go is you uh, you go for the, go for Walsh and save some and, and have the hammer later on in the season.
0: It's exciting times. Uh, this is going to be one of the more yeah. exciting uh, weekends of the year. I'm looking forward very much to figuring out my own fab bidding. I got uh, a <laughs> couple of leagues where I have to do that. The third league that I play in has such deep reserves that most of these guys have long since been rostered. So it's not really as exciting when something like this happens because you look at, it, oh good, uh, you know, Brendan Rodgers is available. Uh, no, he's not. He's, somebody picked him in the 14th round of the reserves two years ago or whatever the case might be and it takes a little bit of the steam out, out of but two leagues is still plenty to consider. Uh, Got to be taking a look at the roster requirements of the other guys uh, in addition to the how much uh, fab they have left. It's a very exciting time, Todd. Thanks a million for helping us out, talking about it, and we'll catch up with you again in a week.
6: Have, have fun this weekend. We both will.
0: God Zola writes for Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire, and he appears here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. When we come back, our Baseball HQ commentaries, the frequent flyer pitcher matchups, and master notes, all coming up on Baseball
1: HQ Radio. Two balls and two strikes on it. Here's the pitch on the way. A swing and a bounce Left field, way back. Blue Jays.
0: welcome back to baseball hq radio i'm patrick david time now for our regular hq radio commentaries coming up we have the weekend pitcher matchups and master notes and leading off our frequent flyer commentary where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer because they could be available in your free agent pool and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's frequent flyer is Miami starting pitcher Zach Gallen, And here to tell you more is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky.
7: He's a solid right-handed pitcher with an average pitch profile who struggled with base runners, according to the 2019 minor league baseball analyst Maybe that description is a complimentary equivalent of being considered as, well, nice in both circles. He's, well, a nice pitcher. He's, well, solid. And he has an average pitch profile. Yep, a good solid pitcher. In fact, the minor league baseball analyst rates his future upside as possibly a number five starter or a swingman with only a 30% chance of reaching that potential. In other words, 23-year-old Zach Gallen is a nice, good, solid pitcher with four pitches, but no one pitch outshines the rest, according to a 2019 minor league baseball analyst. That's why Zach Gallen, like all of our for-good flyers, should be considered to be a long shot who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. After all, Zach Gallen is a nice, good, solid pitcher with four pitches, but no one pitch outshines the rest, right? So what's the catch? Zach Gallen is currently leading the Pacific Coast League with a 116 ERA through his first eight starts. His spotless 5-0 record is largely due to striking out 64 batters while only walking nine. That translates to a command ratio of seven strikeouts to walks. Remember, we at BaseballHQ.com consider a command ratio of three strikeouts to walks or higher to be what Patrick Davitt might call the best in the business, yes, it's a small sample size. However, Zach Gallen's minor league career command ratio is closer to 3.7 strikeouts to walks, which still ranks among baseball's best, according to our benchmark of three strikeouts to walks or higher. And speaking of ranking among baseball's best, if you caught our own Jack Thompson's May 9th rotisserie article entitled Top Prospects Await the Next Wave of MLB Call Ups. You would already know that Miami Marlins control specialist, Zach Gallen, wasn't even listed among the club's top ten prospects at the beginning of spring training. But he's just an injury or a timeout away from a major league debut that seems likely to come sooner rather than later. Definitely astute observation. After all, Zach Gallen is a nice, good, solid pitcher with four pitches, but no one pitch outshines the rest, right? Well, his leading the Pacific Coast League with a 116 ERA through his first eight starts is pretty nice. His command ratio of seven strikeouts to walk so far is really, really good. And his 5 0 record is, well, solid to say the least. So maybe Zach Gallen is a nice, good, solid pitcher who outshines the rest after all, as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com.
0: Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has our frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for weekend to pitcher matchups. And here with a scan of a marquee matchup with Houston right-hander Brad Peacock in Boston on Sunday to take on Chris Sale, as well as other matchups this weekend, it's Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick.
5: Southpaw Chris Sale is back for Boston. He has this weekend's best matchup rating of 321 for his home start on Sunday. Visiting Houston right-hander Brad Peacock has a matchup rating of minus 027. Sale sports superior component ratings in all four categories of strikeouts, ERA, whip, and win. His component rating differentials range from 276 for ERA to 429 for Win, with 327 for WHIP and 358 for strikeouts in between. Houston has the best record in Major League Baseball, as they should with a run differential of 87. The Red Sox have raised their record to three games over 500, and their run differential is 27. Sale was held back in spring training and his first four starts were ramp ups for the regular season. Two of those four starts were PQS disasters and Sale failed to go more than six innings in any of them, allowing 17 earned runs in 18 innings pitched, striking out a grand total of 14. His pitch counts ranged from 76 to 93. Since then, he's gone at least six innings and struck out at least 10 in four of his next five starts, with pitch counts ranging from 97 to 111 and three PQS Doms. In the 34 innings of those five starts, Sale has struck out 59 and allowed seven earned runs for an ERA of 185. Even with his first four subpar starts, Sale now has a whip of 102 and a career second best expected ERA of 274 while elevating his BPV over 200 for what would be the third consecutive season. Peacock's seven starts have not been nearly as spectacular as sales. He has three PQS DOMs and three PQS disasters. Fifteen of the nineteen earned runs scored against Peacock came in those three disasters. He has a career second best whip of one hundred thirteen, but his expected ERA is four twenty-four. In forty-three innings pitched, Peacock has struck out forty-one and put up a BPV of ninety-three. In short, Peacock is serviceable, but the only category in which he edges sale is age at thirty one to thirty. Our marquee mismatch is in Miami on Sunday, where the weekend's largest matchup rating differential of 390 favors the New York Mets 26-year-old righty Noah Syndergaard. Syndergaard has the second-highest matchup rating of the weekend at 269 for the visiting Mets. The makeshift Marlins can only counter with 23-year-old right-hander Sandy Alcantara, who has a matchup rating of minus 121. Miami is the worst team in Major League Baseball, if not on the planet. Their run differential is minus 96. The Marlins have won only 10 games and are on pace to lose 122. At home, the Fish are out of water at 11 games under 500. Against right handers, they're 16 games under 500. Even the Avengers couldn't save the Marlins. And besides, Thor pitches for New York. The Mets are one game under 500 overall and two games under 500 on the road against right-handers. The New Yorkers are one game over 500, and versus teams under 500, they're five games over 500. The Mets run differential may be minus 15, but they still have a clear advantage, and that advantage applies to the starting pitchers too. In nine starts, Syndergaard has three peak US Doms and one disaster. His expected ERA is 3.38, almost a run and a half less than his ERA of 4.74. Syndergaard's first pitch strike rate is the best of his career at 66% and his BPV is 145. Alcantara is in his first full MLB season and was rated a 9E prospect in our 2019 Minor League Baseball Analyst. Alcantara has electric stuff, but as of yet, little control of it. His first pitch strike rate is 57%, and he's walking 4.7 batters per 9 innings, though that's down from 7.9 last season. Still, Alcantara's whip is worse at 164 this year, as his hit rate normalized from a fortunate 25% in 2018 to 31% in 2019. Alcantara's expected ERA is 555, and his BPV is minus 1. The odds are supremely stacked in favor of Syndergaard and the Mets on Sunday, but not so much on Saturday. Our Saturday surprise is also in Miami, and it's the only matchup in which both starting pitchers have strong start matchup ratings this weekend. It would be surprising enough if 28-year-old lefty Steven Matz can come off the 10-day DL for nerve irritation in his left forearm and make the most of his scheduled start. If so, Matz is in for another surprise. His matchup rating of 071 is only two points higher than his opponent Pablo Lopez's 071. 69. Matz's unsteady first pitch strike rate of 58% belies his career second best control rate of 2.3 walks per nine. His career best whip of 120 is aided by a fortunate hit rate of 27%. Matz has an expected ERA of 410 and a BPV of 110. Like Alcantara, Pablo Lopez is another 23-year-old right-hander for Miami, but he's harnessing his stuff. Lopez has a BPV of 131 over 8 games started. In 41 innings pitched, he struck out 42. His strand rate of only 54% contributes to a nearly 2.5 run differential between his ERA of 593 and his expected ERA of 353. This may be a close contest. To recap, expect Chris Sale and Noah Syndergaard to dominate on Sunday. On Saturday, look for a surprisingly close one between Stephen Matz and Pablo Lopez and load your lineups with as many Cardinals and Rangers as possible. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com.
0: Greg Fishwick is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has his weekend pitcher matchups report here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I want to talk about watching the crawl. As usual on a Saturday, last weekend I finished the chores mandated by Mrs. Master Notes in the morning so I could be ready to watch a little baseball in the afternoon. I have the extra innings package like many of you, and on this particular Saturday, it happened that the first live game I wanted to see was on MLB TV. During that game, I took an interest in the items appearing on the crawl that modern TV production designers run along the bottom of our screens for fear we might want to actually not watch programming for more than four seconds in a row. In particular, I was taken by how these statistical nuggets had literally no value to helping viewers understand the games that were to come or the player performances. In the age of StatCast and Sabre and Baseball Savant, and even a few announcers cautiously mentioning launch angles, many of the news items seemed to be actively and purposely enumerate. About the best that anyone could say upon reading them would be, huh, how about that? Here are some examples, with some of my own analysis and some broadcast-quality hot takes. For example, I saw one blurb pointing out that Carlos Correa had gone 1-for-14 over his preceding four games. This is an example of imposing a narrative on a situation, even when there's no narrative actually present in the situation, or at least no narrative that actually makes any kind of point. It's as though Herman Melville had interrupted the whale hunting in Moby Dick to note that Fedallah was 29 for his last 116 harpoon tosses, over the last six days, of course. You see, in 2017-19, through Carlos Correa had five different runs of four games in which he went one for 14. Overall, after those games, he was 10 for 19, but that was made up of a two for four game, a couple of three for threes, a one for four and a one for five. So on Saturday, when he went one for four again, it turned out that his prediction was about as useful as examining the entrails of goats. Next came a note that Minnesota is 13-3 in games during which they hit two or more home runs. 13-3 is an 8-13 win percentage. That's the equal of a 132-win team in a regular season, so it does sound pretty impressive. But it seemed intuitively obvious to me that teams hitting two or more home runs will score more runs in a game than when they don't hit two or more home runs. And scoring more runs portends well for a team's chances of winning. Indeed, the stats bear that out. In 2018, 1,542 games had at least one team hitting two or more home runs. Now, in 270 of those games, both teams hit two or more, so we're going to leave those games out of the analysis. The average runs scored per game in teams with two-plus homers was 6.4 runs, while the average in games without two-plus homers was 3.7. So hitting two-plus homers amounted to a 2.7 average increase in runs scored per game. Not surprisingly, those added runs meant added wins. In the 1,272 games where only one team hit two-plus, those teams' winning percentages increased by a lot. Well, in a fairly wide range, actually, from 332 percentage points, that was Detroit's record, to just 57 percentage points for Cincinnati. But the average gain was 217 winning percentage points. That's a big difference. But Minnesota's gains in 2-plus homer games was no big news. It was almost exactly the same gain this season as last. In 2018, the Twins gained 148 points in winning percentage in their 2-plus homer games, and this season, through May 10th, Minnesota gained 146 points. 146 versus 148. So what this item was actually telling us was this. Minnesota has won 15% more games this year when they hit 2-plus homers than when they don't pretty much the same as last year. And the keen baseball fan like you, caller, is going to say, yeah, so? Now there is something interesting about this. The Twins' 16-2-plus homers through their first 36 games put the team on pace for 72 such games throughout the season. If we assume they win those games at the same 6.55-ish percentage that is league average, that's 47 wins. All they have to do is play 500 in their non-2-plus homer games, that's 45 more wins, and there's 92 wins in a playoff spot. Next came some pitcher items. The first was a real capper. The crawl said that Cubs left-hander Cole Hamels was 8-3 with a 3.57 ERA in 16 career starts versus Milwaukee he was going to pitch against Milwaukee on Saturday. This item is just plain silly for two reasons. First, 16 starts in a particular context doesn't say much about any particular start in that context. It's like making a point about Hamill's career record in games pitched on the birthdays of the Danish royal family or something. More problematic in this instance is that the context isn't even the same because we're talking about a single franchise but a bunch of different teams. It's easy to talk about the Brewers, but which Brewers are we talking about? Hamill's first start against Milwaukee was on May the 18th. In 2006, 13 years ago, the Milwaukee batting order on that day, ignoring the pitcher Dana Eveland, was Ricky Weeks leading off, followed by Jeff Cirillo, Jeff Jenkins, Carlos Lee, Prince Fielder, Bill Hall, Brady Clark, and Chad Moeller, all names with which we're mostly familiar. And all names that we realize are of players who don't play anymore. In Saturday's start against Milwaukee, he faced an order that led off with Lorenzo Cain, then Christian Yelich, Jesus Aguilar, Yasmani Grandal, Ryan Braun, Mike Moustakas, Hernan Perez, Ben Gamel, and Orlando Arcia. You don't have to attend first pitch Arizona or the Sloan Conference. You don't even have to subscribe to BaseballHQ.com to notice that these are two entirely different teams. What? Cole Hamels did against the Brewers in 2006 has no bearing whatsoever on what he was going to do against the Brewers in 2019. Now, for the record, in 2006, Hamels went six and a third, gave up four earned runs on five hits and four walks. That's a 568 ERA, about 2.1 runs higher than his career average. On Saturday against Milwaukee, Hamels tossed a small gem, seven innings, one earned run, three hits, three walks, and a 129 ERA, which is 2.28 lower than his career average. So all we can say from the crawl information is that looking at Hamels' track record against another franchise, not a team, is helpfully accurate to 3.5 earned runs, plus or minus 2.1. That's about useful for predicting outcomes as highly Romancy. Finally, the crawl told us that Toronto right-hander Marcus Stroman had given up 11 earned runs in his last two starts. This is similar to the other items in that it is almost meaningless. And what I mean by that is, let's consider this question. What are we supposed to know or understand from this information? Does Stroman's rough two last starts mean he's struggling and should be avoided? Or does it mean he's due for a rebound and should be played? Typically, this part of the analysis comes after the fact, with the twenty-twenty hindsight beloved by so many of our baseball broadcasters. Chris List and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago on the April 26th edition of Baseball HQ Radio, and Chris made the point that these kind of streaks do exist in short runs and in long runs but that they are also absolutely useless as predictive tools. My own 2013 research for BaseballHQ.com disproved the favored broadcaster trope that home runs come in bunches. No, they don't. I haven't dug into pitcher streaks or pitcher droughts, but it was certainly easy to check Stroman's actual record to see what happens after he's had two bad starts in a row. And by bad, I'll use the MLB crawl standard. But while they reported 11 earned runs in Stroman's last two starts, May 1st and 6th, he actually only surrendered nine earned runs. Two of the runs were unearned. So we'll go with nine earned runs over any two consecutive starts in Stroman's career. He's had 116 starts before May 11th. That implies 115 pairs of starts in which to establish the bad streak, according to MLB's definition. In his 115 start pairs, Strowman gave up nine or more earned runs 14 times. And in fact, four of those pairs came all in a row to start the 2018 season. Four, five, four, six, and six earned runs. So how predictive were any of these bad start pairs? I'll let you judge for yourself. In the games after each nine-plus earned run start pair, Strowman gave up, and you might want to write this down, Two earned runs, one earned run, four earned runs, two, four, one, zero, eight, six, two, one, zero again, and three. If you think you can make something out of this, go ahead and bet your kid's college fund because I don't think it makes any difference at all. The crawl had some other dubious notes, but I don't have the space or time to parse out the details. If you want to read on, there's a few more examples, well, just go to BaseballHQ.com and read master notes there. The point is there's not much we can do with this innumerate nonsense except be aware of it, and maybe berate the perpetuators if you hear them on sports talk radio in your town and you can get through on the line. In the meantime, don't be fooled by small sample narratives. That stuff never works. Oh, by the way, iluromancy, also known as philidomancy, is predicting the future by using the movements and jumps of cats. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox in the weekly free Baseball HQ e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. You can also read Master Notes for free at the Baseball HQ website. And, of course, we have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, May the 17th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 22 of the 2019 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday edition of the show, Rob Leibowitz from RotoHeaven.com. And one of my competitors in the Tout Wars Ale Only League. He's a longtime fantasy baseball writer, a terrific analyst, and it was great to finally get Rob on the show, and I'm sure you'll agree he did a great job. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky, and our weekend pitcher matchups were presented by Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. Thanks as well to Todd Zola, our regular weekly guest on Talk with Todd. I'm Patrick Davitt, your Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook, Facebook, and on our Twitter feed, at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed, at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio, and take a second to go to Stitcher, or Pocket Cast, or iTunes, wherever you get your pods, and if they'll let you leave Baseball HQ Radio, a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and that, in turn, helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with Mike Podhorzer from Rotographs. That's Mike Podhorzer on the next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. If you're in Canada, have a great Victoria Day weekend. If you're in the United States or anywhere in the world, have a great weekend watching some baseball. Talk to you next week, and so long.